This is the first of the last. That that makes that's almost ominous sounding. Let me rephrase that. This is the first of the last recording that we will do in this current basement. But let me tell you that we are moving. Are you ready? Drum roll. Hi hat. I'm moving to another basement. (laughs) (laughs) I can't get out of basements. This is just going to be called the Basement Podcast from now on. That's not a bad name. It's not. You know what? It's a new new brand. Maybe this hiatus has taught me that um, I can rebrand my show into whatever the fuck I want it to. And let me also rephrase, not rephrase, reiterate. This is my show, and it will always be my show. When you address me, address me as your captain, because you are along for the ride, and I will take you somewhere new. Captain of a goddamn basement. Captain of the goddamn basement. (laughs) Terrible. Terrible name for a boat. Great name for a podcast. Great. Captain of the basement. Um... Uh, put it on my gravestone. So, I, uh, you know, I'm moving out. It's still happening. Um, I told everyone on the, on the Facebook, if you haven't been listening to the Facebook, listen to the Facebook. Uh, you know, follow us. Smash that follow button uh, on the Book of Faces or else you miss critical dialogue where I probably at this point in the game, like eight weeks ago, said, hey, I'm taking a break because I need to control my life before I can control this podcast. And um, let me say, like, uh, life, is, uh, life is a real buck and bronco sometimes. You know, you just got to hold on to the horns and hope that it'll calm the fuck down sometime soon. And um I'm almost there. Well, you know, you know, I got rid of I got rid of my my Facebook. You and, did. And the, the the fun thing about it is I didn't announce it. No, of course not. I did it That's unannounced. That's the best way to do it. And I've got people calling the police, look, we don't know where this guy is. Uh-huh. Um we're worried about him. I was going to say uh, Deputy Dewey and Lanky Lucifer, they did the same thing. They literally just left one day. I went to go uh, post some shit on Deputy Dewey's wall the one day. Um, probably to call him gay or something. And I couldn't find him anywhere, so I ended up texting him and calling him gay. And I was like, where's your Facebook? And he's like, oh, I got rid of it. I don't, I don't blame you. I don't blame anyone 
for getting rid of their Facebooks. If anything, our numbers will dwindle because I'm losing the people who actually record on this show. But let's hope that I just gain that in actual audience members. And um, I realized with that post about the hiatus that um, there, there were some people who liked that post who I hadn't seen before. So it's like, hey, we have... Um, Traction. We have new people listening. Um, like, I, I could check right now. I'm not gonna, because I haven't in a couple weeks. But um, even during the weeks that I'm not posting anything, people are still listening. Mm. Right during the hiatus, we had like a 56 hit week. Mm. Where I was like, <laughs> I was like, 56 hits and I didn't even post anything. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> 9 is what I'm used to after a single post. But 56, when I didn't even fucking post anything, is actually, is actually pretty funny. Very interesting. Yeah, uh, gonna mention him again, because I have to. Uh, Billy fucking Wilkinson, um, he, he asked where, uh, well, let me just read it. He said, where's my fucking episode? Nope, nope, said it wrong. Where's my new episode... You salutes. And, um, and yeah, that's where that message on Facebook came from. I had to get back to Billy to let him know that we're taking a little bit of a break. I didn't want him to play the waiting game and lose and then take it out on us the wrong way. By, you by, salutes! By doxing us and then hunting us down in our beds. You guys are nothing but salutes. Dirty salutes. And, um... Billy boy, I hope I hope you're back and listening. He uh, he just messaged me the other day and told me that he's going to force uh, his friends to listen to the show on a road trip that he's doing, or a, oh. he's going on like a a short distance drive with with people, and he's going to make them listen to an episode. And I have to I have to tell uh, Crying Hawaiian that when I asked which episode. He said it was the Private Eyes episode with Crying Hawaiian, which is actually fucking hilarious. <laughs> and you, I can now like talk about it on the show, but me, you, I'm sitting here with Tenron Ochern, by the way. He's here. Right next to me. I'm over here, me. guys. Hey. He's right next to me. Thanks. Yep, yep. And it'll whisper it real. Oh, yeah. And it makes that, you know, it what makes sense. What voice that, was that? Was that your ghoul voice? Hey. <laughs> Smooth skin. I'm just experiencing a, an anal fissure right now. <laughs> God, Kate, can you stop being racist? Oh. Um, this is episode 135. We just started it. Because, the, you know, newsflash to people listening to this episode here today. Uh, Tenron and I are starting a new series right now. I know we just... We literally just finished the new Baraska chapter with Django Phillips and we're already hot off the presses with a new series. Um, I've been given a lot of recommendations for new series that are happening like right now. Um, I want to finish off the series I already have mm. first. This story, I don't know what year it goes back to, but it's been recommended by anyone. If you were on 
if you were on Reddit and you go to a scariest creepypasta series, scariest Reddit no sleep series, um, recommendation list, someone will put this story in that list somewhere. And, um, I have no, like, this is, this is probably the first time where I can say it, but I have no fucking clue what this series is about. With Left Right Game, I knew the concept. I had read maybe the first couple pages and said, this sounds great. With Baraska, I had heard so much word of mouth on Reddit that I was like, oh, it's about kids being kidnapped and kids going missing. Like, it's about kids. <laughs> With Whistlers, I was like, oh, it's a bunch of fuckers in the woods. Like, right. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't blow my mind. But with with this one, what we're doing today, I haven't mentioned it yet. I don't, I have no clue. No one talks about this one as much, like, like mentions any of the twists or turns or anything. Like, it's been pretty well preserved online. And by that, I mean, no one even mentions the concept. Well, maybe it's a stinker. Or maybe it's like... No, it would not show up on the greatest hits lists if it was a stinker. Like, if Whistlers shows up, if uh, if Left Right Game shows up, if... Maybe it's maybe it's so, so morbid or violent or just downright horrid, then people don't talk about it due to... Um, a lot of bottled up anxiety coming out and, and paranoia. Maybe this story will be it for us. I just think that the people who have read it, who respect it, know not to say too much about it. They just say the name, the title, and post where you can find it and say, read this. Or they're dead. Or they're fucking dead. <laughs> anyway, before I get into the story that we're reading, I did want to talk about a couple things. What, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, in case we die, I was going to plug in a little bit of a Japanese, which I'm having... Yeah, curr- having currently learning Japanese on Rosetta Stone. I'm not a Duolingo, actually. Duolingo. Okay. Uh, a week off social media. So you're not nearly as homosexual as I thought you were. No, 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 no. Okay. I'm an informal language learner. Great. That's what Duolingo is. Great. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to... Sayonara. So, <laughs> in case we die. Uh, ichitakimasu. Uh, watashi. Watashi. That means I. So I just literally said I. Uh, I. I'm pretty sure Ishitakimasu is like the thank you. Oh. See, I'm learning thank right you, now. Like, thank you, sir. I don't need Duolingo. My, my, my stepfather taught me that. I learned um, the word once, but not like the verb. It's like an adjective. Hmm. This is Duolingo. Sorry yeah. for plugging this in real quick. It's Hoshi. 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 And Hoshi. like in the comment section for Duolingo, there's a comment section. Somebody described it as, just think of it as, ho, she wants it. Great. So that's literally how I remember wants as an adjective. Hoshi. Hoshi. <laughs> I like that yeah means no. Oh, I didn't know. I haven't learned that yet. No is like yeah. <laughs> really? Like, like hi. Is yes. Hi is yes. Yep. And yeah. Hi. Like yes. Like yeah. Is no. I learned. Um, isn't isn't that funny that hi. Is yes and yeah like yes, is no. 
(laughs) It's so fucking backwards. Uh, I like it. It's kind of cool. I'm just learning hiragana, which is the basic script for the writing. So, or whatever. But anyway, I've had to plug that in. Yeah, my stepdad told me that he will never be able to understand the writing, but he, he has been taught how to, like, speak. That's good. That's my goal. Writing is kind of just for fun. Um, I wanted to, I mean, I guess we're on the fucking topic, right? Um, I hadn't had the chance to talk about it yet. I feel like my uncles, I, I, I don't know how often I talk about them. They should be on this show because they're some of the best people I know and they have such great character about them and they're very passionate about what they talk about. One of my uncles, uh, made me watch the first episode of this anime and I was immediately hooked and I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to drive home two hours from Jersey city to my house, sit down, load Crunchyroll, and literally watch the rest of this, uh, during the week. And I did. And I fucking loved the first volume. However, I want to preserve the secrets, so I'm not going to look into the manga um, of Promised Neverland. Mm. And the the sheer mindfuckery of that entire series is just so great. It, it There is a cat and mouse uh, chess game that the kids play with the mothers that I find so goddamn enticing in the narrative. You know, it's it's Hunger Games, but it's... Uh, I think we got to stop before you get too far with describing it. For people who don't know a thing about it, sure. that first episode is... It's, it's a breaker. Yeah, it's... It's a real deal breaker. Kids in an orphanage. Yeah. Kids in an orphanage. That's yeah. your premise. Yeah. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil it. Oh. To sell the okay. concept. Oh. To sell the concept to people who haven't heard it. Oh. I need I need to talk about it. Alright, do it. Do so it. You've been warned, folks. I I'm going to give away the plot of the first episode by just brief explanation, but it, it holds a candle to the pacing, the art. Um, the music, like the acting, that that main theme song is fucking awesome. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, I I watched Promised Neverland with my uncle, and I'm looking like cheery little kids who run around the woods and they live with their mom, but like all of them are orphans. I'm like, oh, okay, this is cool. Like, what does this remind me of? Um. Like an Oliver Twist type of situation, like a Stuart Little, um, meet the Robinsons kind of bullshit. And I'm like, oh, okay, so when the kids come of a certain age, or if they're just requested to leave, you know, they just, they have to go. They get, they get adopted, quote unquote adopted. It's almost a uh, creepypasta in concept. Like, we've read stories like this Like, in a Django episode, somewhere before the 20s, we read a story about how people, uh, how orphans went to the lake, to the cabins, 
um, for a couple weeks during the summer, and the one kid went missing, but they didn't really go missing. They were uh, sold. The kid was sold to someone who wanted to just kill the kid, and then they found the body, like, later that summer. Mm. Like, that's the story. But the way that Promise Neverland handles that is the twist handles the twist is with this like a plum supernatural effect and i i didn't see it fucking coming i mean as, as much as i enjoy anime and their tropes from time to time you can't see that ending coming um oh no these these three main characters mostly two turns into three turns into five turns into a bunch which i was really happy about um, the fact that the minor ensemble shines in that last yeah, episode. Yeah, they really do. Um, the first episode, these two kids, basically, they're the smartest, they're the oldest. Um, they kind of oversee everyone below them, and um, they like their to age, play games. Their, and Their age being around 11. Yeah, near 11, because they know if they turn when they turn 12, they gotta leave the, the farm, essentially. And... Um, this little girl, this six-year-old, gets adopted, and um, she's stupid. She's this stupid little girl, um, but she's always seen with her stuffed animal. And they realize that when the mother, just one mom, just one figure that they all call mom, um, this woman takes uh, the little six-year-old down to the gate. There's only one gate surrounded by... What what would you say is sixteen meter, four foot thick? It's a gatehouse, you know. No, I'm talking about the wall, like yeah. concrete wall that just oh enraptures the farm. Yes. Yeah. You uh, always wonder in that situation: is the is the wall keeping something out, or is it keeping them in? You know, that question is already in your mind when the twist is re- revealed. So it's like. They get to this gate, and for the first time in their life, you know, they're disobeying their mother. They're told not to go near the gate. They're told not to let go out at night. They're told not to do any of this shit. Not to go near the outer limits of the farm, um, past the forest, past the gate, you know, all this shit. But they do it because they want to get this little girl her her stuffed animal back. It's her her fucking stuffed animal. Um, When they get there... They literally just find the little girl's dead body. But it's not just dead. It's like drained of life essence. It's like drained um, and mutilated. And it is revealed to us, the the watchers of this anime or the readers of the manga, that there is a aristocrat type of empire of demons that oversee humanity. It's almost like an off-kiltered future where we are the cattle led to the slaughter by a higher race than us, much like we, you know, lead cattle to the slaughter. So it's it's a really interesting twist that makes you think about uh, how humans consume shit and how we live our lives. Um, it enraptures so many different, like, 
life metaphors and shit. And um, once these kids realize the the grim reality of their situation, that when you're 12, you just get eaten by some demons. You know, your 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 brain is more delectable when you're older and smarter. Um, you know, they realize they got to get the fuck out of there. So it becomes a race against time in many situations where the mother is supposed to prepare them, you know, much like Snape in Harry Potter, prepare them for the day where they must die. Like, the mother must begrudgingly love these children and take care of them and see them get smarter and grow into stronger young adults only to see them die for her safety and protection by the demon system. And um, these things are huge. They're like 30 feet tall and they like their hands are the size of people. Like um, it's crazy. And and the imagery is nuts. It's um, it's not as devil man cry baby in demonology as much as it is like a, a cousin of like death note <laughs> for like illustration on the demons. And, um, yeah, so that's the plot of the first episode, but then the rest of it kind of becomes like a Hunger Games escape the forest situation where kids are trying to help other kids while there are some kids betraying other kids. And, you know, there's a lot of moral dilemmas, like do we take the babies, do we leave the babies, are some kids big enough to handle this? Can some kids even understand the truth? Can can older kids even handle the truth of the dire circumstances of their situation? And it's just and it's really great and it's all approached really maturely and kind of logically and the characters are great. Um, what's the one with the the gray hair? Norman. Norman. He's he's my fucking favorite. Norman is by far my favorite character in the entire anime, and I'm not gonna reveal any spoilers about his character, but he. Uh, He's just the best. He he thinks so far ahead in this game of chess that it lays the foundation for the rest of the series. Ooh, and it's What's that kid with the dark hair's name? Is it Ray? Maybe. He's my, he's my favorite. The emo the, one. The emo one. Yeah, I think it's Ray. You're like right. R A Y. Yeah. And Emma is the third. And Emma is the, third the, the most important female. Uh, leader and she's the most important character. She's the most important character. She's also the smartest, um, but uh, well, the most capable, well-rounded. Well, I'd argue Norman be the smartest. No, Norman's not the smartest. And I don't want to get into the argument as to Norman, you why know what? Norman's not sit, the smartest. Sit the fuck down. <laughs> so uh, no, if Norman were the smartest, he would have gotten out of the situation he was in. He's um, a punk. He is a punk. They're all just little punks. Would have gotten away with it too if they were the meddling kids. Um, but I also want to say, in a series like this, it is only as powerful as its other side. And let me say, Mother is one of the most compelling bad guys I've seen in a long fucking time. I like her. I don't want her to die. But at the same time, she's doing shitty shit to good people. And it and it hurts to see someone who was fucked by the system have to take care of the system yeah. and also watch these kids fucking die every day. And I hope she's not 
like gone with how the first season ends, you know, like uh, uh, it ends on a giant cliffhanger where like everyone is alive, but you're not sure what situation they're going to end up being in. Um, it, it is so fucking good. Yeah. It's honestly one of the coolest things I've watched in the last year. But that being said, the best thing I watched this year was Mob Psycho Season 2. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> now that that's out Dude, of the way. anime, uh, honestly, is some of the best media out there. And anyone who tries to argue that it's not just hasn't watched the right anime. And I, it, I will make an argument for dubs. I think dubs are super accessible nowadays, and some of them are even casted pretty well. Sure. I will always say uh, Hayao Miyazaki's uh, Studio Ghibli series, their dubs are some of the best you'll ever find for all of their feature films, and um, they're some of the best animes you'll ever watch. Being able to give those to a broader audience with a really great cast of uh, English voice actors makes it sometimes even better in my opinion mm. but um i always think of that as like the entryway for introducing people to anime like oh if you can handle Miyazaki. A, a shy two-hour movie about fantastical japanese shit then you can handle you know an anime i my intro pieces are usually like studio ghibli cowboy bebop or for the action lovers, like One Punch Man or Attack on Titan. Mm -hmm. Like, strong narratives with likable characters in relatable scenarios. Yeah. I think Death Note's got to be one of the best dramatic pieces. For me, Death Note crosses into uh, pseudo-societal shit that I don't understand because I don't live in Japan. It almost comes with an understanding of Japan, uh, their focal points on media and how school system works. Oh, okay. Their differentiations are a little hard for people to, to dig into as accessibly as... Like, I would say My Hero Academia is a great starter for people who are looking to get into anime, but you won't understand a lot of shit just because their school system works a little bit differently gotcha. than the American or the Western school system works. Um, I think Death Note is good. I just think Death Note ends bad. <laughs> so I'm trying to ignore it. I understand. I don't mind the ending. Yeah. It was in the... Anyway. Anyway, we're, we're talking about anime now. Jesus Christ. Yeah, we're talking about anime. Anime brought up Japanese. And I don't. Down. I don't really. I'm gonna say this, and I'm gonna think about it before I say it, and I'm gonna say it anyway. I don't have many people to watch anime with anymore. So, or even really talk about it with my my uncle. Is one of the only people who recommends like good shit for me, and then gives it to me. Like it's it's easier for me to consume shit if someone says you'll like this and hands it to me. Because mm. um, too many people in the past have said you'll like this and then don't like help me find it or make it easier for me to get it. Mm -hmm. um, and anime could be one of those things that isn't as uh, super accessible to a lot of people. Um, not everyone owns Country Roll. Not everyone owns Hulu. 
Um, where else do you go to watch anime? After that. Uh, Netflix has some good stuff, but not recently. Yeah. Um, is there anything you wanted to say about Promised Neverland? Because I, I wanted it to be more the of The soundtrack a, is a amazing. The soundtrack's great. Oh my gosh. The soundtrack's great. Just like, not an overuse of music. If there is... But, but when it's used, it's warranted and earned. Absolutely. Absolutely. Beautiful soundtrack. If there was one gripe you'd have, what would it be? That's a good question. I really don't know. I guess maybe some scenes are draggy. For me, it's their chins. Oh, so now. Every character's chin. For some reason, the mouth is up like a full nine inches from where the chin lays. Yeah. And that makes everyone kind of look like they have the tiny, like, triangle face. And I know that that's like a... Um, from studying art and from doing art and being taught how to cartoon children, that's an easy way to make children into cartoons, is kind of keep all of their features in the middle of the face and make the surrounding of their face a lot larger. It always gives off the impression of a younger person when you keep all of the features kind of center, um, just like dynamically. And literally everyone but Ray in that show has a face like right in the middle of their fucking head. And I I can't get past it sometimes. Like Emma will like look up and I'll be like, why is your mouth in your nose? (laughs) Like even Norman, like he doesn't look that way sometimes. He actually looks more European than the rest of them. But every once in a while, he'll do, like, a side face, and his mouth will be, like, underneath his eye. And I'm like, that's not right. Why did you draw it like that? I never really get picky about uh, animation. I mean, I'm not picky about it. I just kind of am like, do I like it? I don't know. You know. As a visual artist who draws many things, it's hard for me to not pick at shit like that. Yeah. Almost like how I would pick at, um... For why Attack on Titan doesn't go the extra mile to actually make races look different when they talk about it all the fucking time. It's a plot point. They'll be like, Mikasa's Japanese, but she doesn't look nearly as Japanese as the rest of the cast does mm-hmm. when the rest of the cast is supposed to be European. Yeah. Like, that's enough for me to go, put some squinty eyes on that bitch. <laughs> <laughs> God, don't make She'd be hotter anyway. Out. It's fine. My dick's still out. I want to have sex with you really bad right now. God, don't make a game. Don't make Mikasa. a game, Mikasa. <laughs> Attack on Titan abridged. The one you thing, gotta watch it. The one episode that ever happens. It's so good. Um, the only other thing I wanted to briefly mention, just because it's been so fucking long since we've recorded, um, and I'll forget about it later, is I went and saw Brightburn, and I liked it. It's Superman, Red Sun, but like. More Superman meets Raven. Uh, is it a horror movie? Yeah, it is. I didn't see it. It's Superman. What if Superman was evil? And then they make fun of Man of Steel for pretty much the entire movie. Ah. They're they're really great um, prediction cause and effects that get subverted. And I subversion is a weird word now. After things like Game of Thrones and Last Jedi, where like. Subversion is supposed to be a thing we expect now, but it's not often executed. Done. It's well. not often done right. 
Subversion is supposed to be we expect one thing and another thing happens, but the other thing happens logically. Exactly. exactly. That's what subversion is, and Brightburn does that wonderfully. Wonderfully. Is it well-reviewed? Yes. Yes. Oh, it was okay. also made with, I think, a $15 million budget and made triple that in its opening weekend. So, like, now people are like, make more fucked up superhero movies. And I'm, I'm all for it because it was actually pretty good. The kid is not convincing at all. It took me out of the movie at some points. Um, they could have gotten a better kid actor to play uh, to play the evil Superman clone. But, um, Must have been related to somebody, the producer, maybe. Maybe. I've never seen him in anything else, and he, he wasn't super convincing. Um there, there's almost a joke even later in the movie where Elizabeth Banks is like, I think he's lying, and the husband who's from like the office um, plays uh, Pam's ex-fiance. Um, I always forget that character's name. Um, he's like, no shit, no shit, he's lying, and I'm like, oh, at least the characters are aware of it. You know, at mm-hmm. least it's written in a way that it's not just the audience going like, is this kid even trying? It's like, no, in the movie, like, in the universe of the movie, the kid isn't trying either. So at least it's played up that way. It's very self-aware. It's a little predictable, but like I said, the end results usually subvert your expectations. Even then, it's predictable. If, if you can think of a positive and a negative outcome to any of the situations that those characters are thrown into... It's going to be one of those two. It's not a subversion that throws you for a loop. It's just a subversion that flips your expectations. It's interesting. It's worth a watch. It was actually like a horror film, which I was surprising. Like the kid is like a serial killer. He kills a lot of people in that movie. Um, But arguably the best part of the movie is the end credits where he kind of goes on to like destroy the world. <laughs> it's pretty fucking great. Um, they do all these faux news footage of, like, a kid floating next to a city as, like, a building goes down and everyone is, like, looking up in the sky wondering who he is and he's wearing his creepy fucking mask. I gotta check it out. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, it It's almost like it... It's almost like it took what Chronicle wanted to be hmm. and just amped it to 11 but it doesn't have nearly as good... Chronicle was with... Dane DeHaan. Anywho, uh, Brightburn's worth a watch. Give it a look. Um, if you like Superman even a little bit. If you like comics even a little bit. If you like Man of Steel even a little bit. Go see Brightburn. It's it's entertaining. That's the least I can say about it, is that it's entertaining. And that's just because I don't want to give much more about it away because it's it's short it's quick it's to the point and i i had an okay time watching it there was uh one person in the theater behind me who i think um didn't really understand the point because they kept trying to like yell at the screen about the kids decision making And I was like, I was at the point where I like wanted to turn around and say something like, why are you talking? You might as well. I'm at that point in life where I'm going to be starting to look for fights. (laughs) I'm not going to say that. 
I'm not going to say that I'm starting to look for fights. I am. Um, what, I'll, what I'll say is I'm, 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 I'm at the point in life where, uh, where I'll definitely end them. <laughs> I'll end the fights. I'll end you. <laughs> end your life. Oh, that's great. Um, anyway, it's about that time where we get into shit. Because we do have, uh, I'd say, close to 40 pages to read on this here part. Yeah. So today I am here with Tenron Otrin in episode 135. Someone recently told me that I should just stop numbering the episodes and just put the titles in the tracks. And I said, but then it would be so much harder for me to keep track of shit. Yeah. That's true. I understand why that would be easier, nameless person who suggested it on the YouTube. But things, uh, I'd like to think our episodes have a narrative. If you hadn't listened to some of Tenron's episodes by now, you might not know our repertoire by this point. Um, I I can't say it enough. Go back and fucking listen to all of uh, Left Right Game. Any any title that you see, left, right, BA, part one, part two, all the way up through... Uh, that was a great series. Part five, I think. It was five parts. I, it was five parts. It was. Oh, I, but it, I, was, it was the best thing we've done on this podcast. I want that. That is like one thing I'd, I'd love to see as a movie. Oh, absolutely. We tried casting um, it. That's right. Yeah, but so many, so many people actually said to the guy who did... Um, the guy who does Channel Zero for sci-fi, or did Channel Zero for sci-fi, was asked during his many Reddit AMAs what he'd like to do the most, and he flat out said, "I'd love to do Left Right Game, but I'd have to cut, I'd have to cut so much just because the budget for a car like road trip movie or road trip series yeah. is so fucking high because of all of the locations." Yeah. And I and I kind of sat back and said. What do you mean locations? Just get, go to some empty fucking Midwest state that has a desert road, a grass road, and a forest road, and green screen the fuck out of everything else. Yeah, that's true. Cut that budget in half, motherfucker. Spend the rest of it on the cars and the actors. Yeah, the actors... I care so much more about what happens to them, and in fact, rewrite parts of the stories so that most of them die in better ways. Like, I'd be okay with that, too. Channel Zero takes the core concept of popular no-sleep and creepypastas, but then plays with them a little bit so that you don't get the same results. Yeah. And one thing that always upset me about left-right game is just how fast and how sort of meaningless so many people in in the caravan die. And um, that's something I was always like, if Channel Zero had the budget for this... I actually think it would be superior to the original story. Mm. Um, it's the type of uh, it's the type of series, and I I don't think I don't think Left Right Game could be a a movie. It would have to be at least three movies. Much like Lord of the Rings, it would have to be like three movies. Um, first movie is the meet, the build-up, the setup, end on the question of whether or not any, any of what's happening is real. Second one, tons of people die in horrific ways, just on the road. Um, 
all climax, your your Empire Strikes Back, um, all climax, building to a point, and then the point in the third movie is all emotion. Return of the King, you know, it's uh, we're getting to the end of the line. the The clan has dwindled. the The drama with Bluebird is is, you know, it it comes to a culmination point. And then it just goes like annihilation, like straight supernatural for the yeah, final act. It would need to be exactly like annihilation, the the way that that movie ends. You know, it's like, um, God, that was such a weird end. It was a weird ending. Yeah, I think every movie I'm saying right now is exactly the effect that Left Right Game would need to have as a movie series. It's like it would need to pick. It picks the best pieces of so many other narratives that the movie version of it would need to pick the pieces of so many other series to to work the same way to the same effect. Oh yeah. And um yeah man, I hope I hope someone somewhere adapts that material at some point cuz it's like I said easily the best thing we've done on this podcast. Very closely followed by like um yeah, give us the budget, we'll do it. I don't know if I can handle a budget. Get somebody who can. Get someone else who can handle the budget. I'll, Franz. Di- I'll direct. Franz McBoohoo. He is terrible with his money. <laughs> he is terrible with his money. He'll spend it all on food. Well, yeah. Anyway. Um, I'm here with Tenron Otrin. We're going to get into the story now. Uh... You've seen the title. You know what this is. I don't even know if I'm going to play around with it. I might just make it title part one, unless we come up with something funnier to call the episode while I'm recording it. Um, The story is called Spire in the Woods. Now, when I say the title Spire in the Woods, what does that make you think? Um, The uh, Tower of Isengard. Really? Oh, that's fucking awesome. I was going to say, a spire is a tower, correct? Yeah. And Some sort of tower. I don't know. And the woods the woods are already ominous. We know this. The forest from- of Fangle lies at our doorstep. Burn it. Yes. <laughs> the fact that you explained it after you did it. Um, Burn it. We know. We know from left right game. We know from whistlers. We know from a million other fucking stories by now that forests can be creepy. Mm. And I don't know if I've ever told you this dream, um, but I've always wanted to write a, a short story about it. But it's about kids drawn to a tower in the middle of a park, but Ooh. the tower. The tower has no doors, no windows, but someone rings the bell every day. So how does the tower exist? And I always wanted to write like a short story about that. And part of me is like, through the public subconscious, did someone write this story already? And is that what we're going to read today? Like, ooh, you know, did I cast my dream waves out there? <laughs> And say, hey, some fucker online, write this story for me. Um, yeah, that was a dream I had when I was like 12. And I just kept it in my back pocket for a while. Um, so, Spire in the Woods, Tower in the Woods. How can that be creepy? How can that be crazy? 
I don't know, but this story is, uh, it's gonna be five episodes long, um, and, uh, I, I, I know that it's not gonna, you know, the episodes aren't gonna be as long as the five parts of Left Right Game, so, um, you don't have to worry about that. Length is gonna be on our side this time. Um, I'll try to, aside from this first episode, which is kind of our intro episode to the series, I do expect the rest of them to kind of run like an hour and a half long. Hell yeah. So, um, I feel like I've done all of the talking over the last 50 minutes. Um, I'm going to let you start. Perfect. And it's only because I love the first line of this story. And I feel like it's going to resonate with you. Um, so yeah, this is Spire in the Woods. Uh, I believe it's from Reddit No Sleep. And you are here with Captain Death... And Tenron Otrin on lots of pasta. Konnichiwa. Shut up, weeb. Sayonara. <laughs> Not sayonara, that's... Robert Edward Kennan killed himself in the fall of 1999. I wasn't there, but it's where my story begins. It begins with Rob... Seventeen years old, sitting in a burning car in the middle of a crowded parking lot, one Monday night in October. Rob. 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 Rob Gathard. Oh, Rob. Rob. Hello, Dex. Hello, Rob. Gets me every time. Oh, Rob. Hello, Dex. It's one of them Camino darts. <laughs> Shut up and read. <laughs> How good your manners are. How big your cock is. <laughs> God damn it! Every time I try to say the, I try to say the real line, and you just say cock. Because it's like subversion, man. <laughs> oh, I fucking hate you. So this guy Rob, burning in this car, sitting in a burning car in the middle of a crowded parking lot one Monday night in October. He burned for nearly four hours before the police let the firemen near enough to put out the flames and pull out his body. I didn't know him, not really. We lived in a small town. I knew him by sight, knew his name, but I doubt we'd ever exchanged more than a few perfunctory words. It makes me feel funny talking about him, like I'm not justified doing it. But if I'm going to tell you about the spire, it's unavoidable. I have to tell you about Robert Edward Kennan and how the suicide notes he left behind tangled my life up with his. Back then, we both lived in a sleepy town in New England, a little over an hour northwest of Boston, just across the New Hampshire border. It's the sort of place that's nice to live if you're the sort of person that doesn't like doing very much. There's really only three reasons anyone ever steps foot in my hometown. The first is that they're on their way to Nashua, the shopping mecca of the Northeast. The second would be the ice cream. We have a dairy farm where they sell the world's best ice cream. All of it made right here on the premises, or right there on the premises. And the third is because they bought one of those haunted New England books. Usually you can find our town listed in those books twice. The first entry will likely be the story of how our high school which is one of the ten oldest in the country, came to have the Silver Spectre as its mascot. I always loved the Spectre. It reflected how steeped in folklore 
rural New England one once was. And as mascots go, it's much more interesting than the fighting. Fill in the cat species here. Fighting pussy cats. And then the fighting felines. Fighting wild cats. The fighting ligers. The fighting tigers. The fighting cats. <laughs> Everyone else seemed saddled with. Way back in the 1890s, there was a terrible blizzard. A proper nor'easter. It dumped several feet of snow across the whole region. There were many, many casualties, mostly the very young and very old, stuck in their homes without heat. One of the exceptions, who was neither very young nor very old, was Jennifer Wilkins. She was a teacher trapped in the school when the blizzard hit. What little food there was in the schoolhouse couldn't have lasted more than two days, and folks say by the fifth she had resorted to boiling her boots to soften up the leather for eating. It was two weeks before anyone was able to reach her. They found her, body thin as a matchstick, wrapped up in a gray wool blanket. If only they'd had paste in those days, she might have made it. Ha ha. That old schoolhouse is now our town rec center. Supposedly, old Jenny still haunts its walls, wrapped in that gray wool blanket, her hollow, emaciated visage searching in vain for something to eat. Once when I was eight or nine years old, long before I knew the origins of the Silver Spectre, I went up into the rec room's attic alone. It was August, and I had snuck away from the rest of the summer reading program and my own interminable boredom. The dusty attic was filled with broken furniture and plastic bins containing the crafting supplies for all of the daycare programs. It would have been entirely forgettable, if not for the drafts. The summer had been hot and humid, but in the rec center's attic, if you stepped in the wrong spot, it gets so cold you could practically see your breath. I told my mom about it, and she was the one who told me about Jenny. I never went up. I never went back up there alone. The second story you typically find in those books is about the Blood Cemetery. Its real name is the Pine Hill Cemetery, but nobody calls it that. They call it the Blood Cemetery because it's supposedly haunted by Abel Blood and his family. According to the legend, Abel Blood lived in the center of what is now the cemetery back when it was farmland. He returned from the fields early one day to find his wife in bed with another man, a tall, dark-haired stranger. Abel was stunned. How could Mrs. Blood, a good Christian woman, do such a thing? Obviously, this scoundrel was forcing himself on his wife. Abel retrieved his pitchfork, charged back into the house, his mind full of vengeance. But as he drew near, he heard his wife, mid-coitus, proclaim her love for the black-haired stranger. Oh, Johnny Depp. There Johnny it. Depp. I should be evaluated oh, at a hospital. Oh, Johnny Depp. I, prob I probably need some tests of evaluation. Oh, to come on. This is a scary story. <laughs> With a note of satisfaction to her call that Abel had never heard before, Mr. Blood saw Red. He burst into the room, pitchfork held aloft, and ran through them. Over and over he plunged the fork into their tangled bodies, before finally leaving them pinned, one on top of the other, to the bed beneath them. That's a Jason move. I think that's uh, Friday the 13th. 
part two. These two fuckers are going at it, and I think he takes a uh, like a fishing spear mm. and just runs it through the bed, gets both Ugh. of them in one go. God. Just the amount of strength he has to have to do that. Yeah, man. Envious. Looking at the bloody mess he'd made, Abel found his rage had not diminished. This seemed curious to Abel, but it dawned on him why he'd, he'd spied a picture of his family on the mantle. His children didn't look anything like him, nor like their mother. They were all exceptionally tall, with full heads of somewhat greasy black hair. Abel waited, standing in the puddle of blood that had only moments ago been coursing through Mrs. Blood and her lover, and stewed in his ever-deepening anger. He was a cuckold. He had no heir. He'd been raising another man's children. A man who'd been betting Abel's wife for years. Abel waited and stewed for several hours until his four children arrived home from school. They say his sons and eldest daughter put up a noble fight, but they were children fighting a grown man whose muscles had been hardened by a lifetime of farm labor. Only Abel's youngest daughter, barely five years old, made it out of the house alive. She sprinted the fast as her little legs could carry her in a desperate attempt to reach her neighbors. But even with her head start, her little legs were no match for her father's powerful strides. Just as she scrambled up over the stone wall separating their farm from the Halseys, Abel picked up one of the stones and smashed it down on her head. These days, if you go there on the road that borders the cemetery, you'll see this curve full of skid marks. People say that uh, they were caused by cars swerving to avoid an oddly dressed little girl who runs out into the street each night. Back home, we had a rite of passage. As soon as you or one of your friends were old enough to drive, you had to trespass into the blood cemetery at night and make a rubbing of the blood family's gravestones. I did it. And you should feel free too, but be prepared to be disappointed because none of the bloods died on the same day. A lot of ghost stories are like that. Doesn't mean they're not fun, but what you come to realize as you get older is that they're mostly a form of social control. Jennifer Wilkins really did die a horrible death, but the story of Abel Blood is nothing but a fantasy story with a rather dark, misogynistic message. Cheat on your husband and he'll kill you. I loved ghost stories growing up, loved them. That's what gave me my not entirely unearned reputation as the spooky kid. It was the reason that about a month after he died, Rob Kennan's suicide wound up in my lap. There, buried in the middle of apologies to his family and clear evidence of severe depression, was my first push towards the spire in the woods. The only ghost story I truly believe. I like the kind of way that this guy's talking. It reminds me a lot of the podcast and uh, show on Amazon Prime called Lore. The, the show and the podcast's premise is that someone will take a taboo thing in history that has maybe been exaggerated, or maybe we don't know the truth behind it, or it's just fucking weird, like um, lobotomies. Like, the guy does a full episode on lobotomies, how lobotomies came about, how they were, you know, treated. Essentially, each episode begins with this guy telling like a folktale you know lore um 
and it'll always be a breakdown of that lore or something close to it to kind of show the hand of where that story came from, mm. why its moral points were carried on, you know, much like that story. The much the way you read that reminded me of lore, which is a really huge compliment because like to the writer and to you, because that's a professional fucking series. And um I don't do this for the praise, folks, just so you know. I'm just saying I'm doing this. People pay to listen to lore yeah. and they pay Amazon Prime to watch a TV show version of it. Um in fact I should show you it because it's it's pretty fucking good. You have Amazon Prime? No, but I would I would definitely pirate it for you. Oh. Endorsing crime. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Commit crimes, folks. Help. I'm sitting next to a a criminal. I'm a criminal. Help. In 1999, I was a sophomore in high school. Rob was a senior. He wasn't what you'd call real popular. Part of it was that he wasn't born in my hometown, but moved there in the seventh grade, right when the kids were at their cruelest. The first I ever heard of him was a year later. There was a rumor floating around that he and a mentally handicapped girl were found naked in the woods together. The implication being that he tricked her into having sex with him. A couple of years later, I heard another that his parents were forced to move because Rob had been molested by their old priest down in Amherst. To the best of my knowledge, these stories are entirely untrue, and I'm deeply ashamed to admit that when I was in the sixth grade, I did gleefully repeat that first one. I found it funny at the time. The second, I also repeated, just not as glibly. I whispered it to my friends, adopting a sage tone and offering it as an explanation for why the first rumor was probably true. I felt so goddamn smart. I had the inside scoop, something interesting to say. Everyone wanted to listen to me. I wish I'd kept my mouth shut. I wasn't smart. I was just a kicking I was just kicking a kid while he was down, spreading the lies that may have been may have contributed to him killing himself. The rumors followed Rob everywhere. He was a quiet kid, by all accounts very bright and kind. And I want to be clear here, he did have people who cared about him friends. Not many, and maybe they weren't too popular either, but well, they were there, and they were nice guys. One of them was my ride to school, Nathan Fletch Fletcher. Fletch and I lived in the same neighborhood. We were never all that close, but we got along well enough. He was a lovable goofball, always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, but it never got him down. He had this grin that stretched from ear to ear, and he always managed to get me excited about his latest musical discovery or restoration project. Fletch used to buy old cars, fix them up, and resell them. While it helped pad his savings for college, it also meant he was stuck driving whatever hunk of junk he hadn't managed to fix up enough to sell yet. That year, Fletch was driving a 1984 Honda Civic. I still hate that car. I found out something was wrong on on Tuesday morning when Fletch's rust bucket didn't show up in my driveway like it usually did. Instead, his dad, an Air Force officer, nowhere near as affable as his son, was waiting for me. I liked Mr. Fletcher fine. He was a good, if not particularly affectionate, father to his boys and a respectful neighbor. 
but his presence in my driveway was odd, especially since I could see that Fletch wasn't in the car. Sir, is everything okay with Nate? Yeah, he's fine. We're just giving him the day off from school. Come on, grab your bag. I'll explain on the way. Mr. Fletcher had turned around and started back towards his car before he'd even finished speaking. I grabbed my backpack and hustled after him. Did you know the cannon boy? He asked as we pulled out of my driveway. Uh, not really. I, I mean, I, I know who he is. One of Nate's friends. Mr. Fletcher nodded, never taking his eyes off the road. He killed himself last night, he said, as evenly as if he'd been announcing we needed to stop for gas. He what? My brain couldn't even process what I was hearing. I'd seen Rob Kennan in the hallway yesterday. How could he be dead? Mr. Fletcher proceeded to lay out the cold, dry facts. Rob had hand-delivered a letter to the house around 7 p.m. Fletch wasn't home when Rob dropped it off, so he didn't open it until later that night, at around 9.45 or so. Upon reading the letter, Fletch went white as a ghost and tore out of the house without permission. He raced to... I'm going to omit this detail, just know it's the location that Rob killed himself. But when he arrived, the car was already burning. Apparently, the letter was a suicide note. Nathan's too upset for school. Something in how he said it made it seem like Mr. Fletcher was implying there was something unmanly about his 17-year-old son being too upset to sit through pre-calculus after one of his best friends had killed himself. He should have called you, Mr. Fletcher continued. But he didn't think to, and it didn't occur to me until it was too late for you to catch the bus. Sorry about that. My initial shock gave way to resentment. No one could have made Rob Kennan's suicide pleasant news, but it was difficult to imagine anyone being more callous than Mr. Fletcher. No wonder Fletch complained about his father so much. Don't worry about it. I'm humbled. We rode the rest of the way in silence. I got to school, found it changed. Compared to the day before, it was an alien landscape. It reminded me of Tartarus in Greek mythology. A bunch of people milling about a, a vacant and lost look in their eyes, unsure of what to do, what to say to one another. Friends clustered silently in small groups. It was like Rob's funeral was being held in the hallways. Classes weren't canceled, but nothing was done. Mainly, the teachers made us aware of special counseling being offered for anyone closely affected and told us that we could come to them if we ever needed to. Their nerves were also frayed. I recall specifically my study hall teacher, normally a very soft-spoken man, banging his hand on his desk and swearing that it was completely... Completely fucking unnecessary! Adding a moment later that... No one needs to do that. No one. No one needs to. We, all of us, drifted through the day in a haze. You'd hug your friends and ask them how they were holding up, or how well they knew Rob. You'd hear about who was there that night. At the omitted location was a popular teenage hangout. And you heard about the cops that could have saved him but didn't. I mentioned earlier that Rob Kennan was left in his burning car for four hours. This is not an exaggeration. It was four hours. Later reports said less time had passed, but Fletch was there, screaming himself hoarse, screaming at cops and firemen and anyone who would listen that 
That was his friend in there and he was dying. It was four hours. Being teenagers, we were quick to question the actions of the police, but now I believe that while their delay proved to be without merit, they made the best decision they could have with the information available to them. Rob hadn't lit himself on fire to be dramatic. He didn't intend for there to be a fire at all. Rob had wanted to shoot himself, but couldn't acquire guns, so he built one. Back then in the 90s, a pre-9-11 world, terrorism wasn't part of the, the zeitgeist. It was bad, absolutely terrible, and we knew it. We'd had Timothy McVeigh and the failed bombing of the Twin Towers. Timothy McVeigh was this little uh, buzz-cut, skinny twerp who uh, was made fun of his entire life. He strapped himself with uh, a bomb and some guns and ran in and tried blowing some stuff up, but he was kind of like uh, <sighs> fucked out of there and you know made a joke and completely arrested and <laughs> just really fucking stupid. Timothy McVeigh. Yeah. Um, we'd had Timothy McVeigh and the failed bombings of the Twin Towers, but we hadn't entered into the neo-McCarthyism that marked much of the early 2000s, where the mere whisper of the word could get you thrown off an airplane or placed on an FBI watch list. So McCarthy was this U.S. senator back in... Um, McCarthyism is something where, uh, during the communist rise in Russia, basically, um, McCarthy came up with the idea where they would, uh, blacklist certain people who even had an association with communist uprising or uh, communist opinion, mm -hmm. that, like, things should be shared. Anyone who spoke like that was just blacklisted and their lives would be ruined. They wouldn't be able to get jobs. Mm -hmm. they, wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to fucking buy food for their grandma down the street. Yeah, nothing. That's McCarthyism. <laughs> and there? <laughs> and there was a certain cash, a mystique that some of the equipment and ideas surrounding terrorism carried in the imaginations of adolescent boys, which is probably why Rob Kennan, like virtually every other guy I knew growing up, had copies of the Anarchist Cookbook and the Terrorist's Handbook saved to a 3.5 floppy disk that he had stashed in his room. When he failed to get a gun, he built one. I'm a little wary to Google it, but if my memory serves me, the instructions for it were listed in one of those text files as the Homebrew Blast Cannon. Rob's Blast Cannon consisted of little more than a lead pipe, capped on one end and filled with gunpowder and bits of metal. It did the trick, but it also launched burning gunpowder all over the interior of his car. Some of the people at the scene thought they had seen someone else in the car with Rob, a girl, and relayed this information to Officer Mikolo, who was the first emergency responder to arrive. I'm gonna go ahead and say McCullough. McCullough. Yeah, not McCullough. Yeah. I'm say McCullough. Officer McCullough hadn't seen anyone else in the car. All he saw was a burning car, a crowd of teenagers, who all reported having heard an explosion and the lead pipe that had rolled out of Rob's unconscious hand and onto the passenger's side of the floor. Terrorism may not have been a big part of the zeitgeist at the time, but school shootings were. 
The Columbine massacre had happened only six months prior. The Columbine massacre was when? <laughs> Son of a bitch! I know what Columbine is. Yeah, these I... two kids really liked The Matrix and playing GTA, so let's blame everything on those. I... Let's not blame it on the mental state or the upbringing of either of those children. It was guns. They were. It was guns. The guns shot the people. Okay? Guns don't shoot people. People shoot people. The guns shot the people. Alright. The guns have wills of their own. Don't you understand that? And Officer McCullough. <laughs> Officer McCullough was a great guy. Officer McCullough was looking at a fairly typical teen loner. Reports of an explosion that was very well, that very, sorry, and what very well could have been an undetonated pipe bomb still in the burning car. He made a tough call. It may have cost Rob Kennan his life, but then again, he might have already been dead. Sorry, you have to ask yourself about what the, that officer did. Was it worth risking more lives to find out? I remember thinking that Officer McCullough, at that point, only known to me as the cop who always gave kids a hard time for riding their bikes without a helmet, was a bastard. And maybe he was a bastard, but if he was, it wasn't because of this. He couldn't risk more lives. Besides, whether or not it was a suicide, if there had been a second person in the car, where the hell was she? Nobody who knew Robert Edward Kennan at all, even people like me who barely knew him, believed for a second that he was out to kill a whole bunch of people. But there was something else that, that could have been going on. Rob had a crush on a girl that bordered on obsession. It had lasted years, and only seemed to be getting worse. The girl in question, Alina, Battle Angel, well, Adelita, <laughs> Alina worked at omitted, at omitted location, sorry, omitted, her eyes are really big. Alita. The girl in question, or perhaps not a girl, but more a robot? Alina, this chick, so hot, worked at omitted location, and Rob would go out of his way to stand in her line or linger in the parking lot after hours, hoping to speak with her as she was heading home. Everyone immediately wondered if the mystery girl in the fire had been Alina. Did he pull her into his car to once more profess his love for her? And, unable to handle another rejection, take his own life before her eyes? Or, God forbid, try to take Alina with him? Alina's friends and co-workers shouted her name, Alina! Alina! Alina where, where are, are you? you? Like. When she didn't respond, they fanned out to look for her. It was the manager, Mrs. Jaffrey. <laughs> That's like the Boston way of saying Joffrey. Jaffrey. <laughs> Mrs. Jaffrey. Who found her? So the manager found Alina. Uh, completely overwhelmed by Rob's suicide, Alina had retreated into one of the walk-in freezers. She was bawling her eyes out as Mrs. Jaffrey threw her coat over Alina's shoulders and led her to the manager's office. It's not your fault. The older woman whispered into Alina's ear, but it didn't do any good. No one else was unaccounted for, and no mystery woman was ever found. No second bomb had ever exploded, and no accomplices ever turned up. I guess we all assumed that those eyewitnesses were mistaken. That the smoke and the flames had played a trick on their eyes. 
we were wrong. Fletch wasn't in school for the rest of the week, and I didn't see him around the neighborhood either. I hate to admit it, but it was sort of a relief. I had no idea what I was going to say to him. What do you really say to someone whose friend had just killed himself? In the weeks that followed, a new form of gossip slowly crept into the hallways of the school. The special counseling held in the cafeteria every morning before homeroom was supposed to be a safe space where anyone could share their feelings without fear of judgment and be secure in the knowledge that it would go no further. So naturally, it was all anyone wanted to talk about. There was a strong backlash against the kids that the other students didn't feel deserved to be there. People who presented themselves as having been very close with Rob, but who in truth rarely spoke with him. Several of my close friends had been at Omitted that night. They had watched Rob burn, seen him die, and although they were deeply affected, they weren't even entirely comfortable being there amongst his handful of close friends, and of course, Alina. I felt terrible for Alina Amenev. Wow. Oh my god. Hot. What a name. It's almost like anime. Alina Amenev. She's so... Alina, so Eastern European. Alina anime. Sitting there in the cafeteria, surrounded by Rob's grieving friends, listening to everyone tiptoe around blaming her. They never came out and said it. Oh, but they'd talk they talk about how girls wouldn't give him the time of day. Quote unquote girls. Girls. Because their standards this isn't part of the story, because their standards for him, you know, their standards were high and he was just some schlub. So No, he was weird. He waited in parking lots, you don't do that. But this guy did. That was him, man. No, that's what I'm saying, and I'm, I'm disagreeing with you. I'm being, yeah. <laughs> playing devil's advocate because yeah. you don't wait for a girl You're after right. they get out of work. You're the devil. You're the devil. You know that bitch. I'm playing that. No, I'm, no, no, I'm no, playing. I'm, the I'm playing Rod's advocate, and he stayed in the parking lot all night waiting for the girl of his life. That doesn't entitle you to. Her He's time. a good guy. That doesn't entitle you to her time, and good is. Subject. You're Satan the devil. Your advocacy for him. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I know what you're saying. This is. This is... I, and I'm also just fucking with you. Um, I've waited for women after work before and they've thought it was nice. So, whatever. If you approach him with this kind of Fred Armisen high, high pitched character voice, hey, how's it going? Yeah, really cool. Nice. Really nice to meet you. Yeah, cool. I'm sure that's how Ted Bundy did all of his oh work. Oh my god. <laughs> Hot. Ted Bundy is a serial killer from the 70s who murdered a lot of women and pretty much escaped. <laughs> Sorry, you can continue. Insane, man. Insane in the bumper! So, yes, we're now we're getting to this blaming of the girl. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, how someone had recently they, ripped out his heart. They never came out and said it, but they'd talk about how girls wouldn't give him the time of day. Quote-unquote girls. How, quote-unquote, someone had recently ripped out his quote-unquote heart. Yeah. When the counselor spoke about how challenging it can be to cope with the insensitivity of other teens, many in the room cast sidelong glances in her direction, waiting for her reaction before adding in their own two cents. The year before Rob's death, Alina had suddenly found herself 
with a kind of unexpected popularity. She was born in Russia. Nailed it, Eastern European. Her last name's Amenev. Amenev. Well, yeah, it could be Eastern European. It's Russian, you cunt. That's just, yeah, I mean, that's what they're going to go for. It might as well have been Molotov, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Just continue the story. Alina Molotov. She was born in Russia, but her parents had managed to emigrate to the United States when Alina was still an infant, which was during the tail end of the Cold War. No easy feat. The Cold War is when the Russians... (laughs) This guy, I mean, I love his writing. Let me just say I love this guy's writing. You love it. I really do. He backs up his points with very culturally appropriate things for the time. But at the same time, it's very, look at what I know, look at how I'm building this. And I see the pieces falling into play, like the foundation to the story coming forward. Um, but it does I'm, still read as the, like, look at what I know. I'm still having, I'm having trouble figuring out what the fuck this spire in the fucking woods is. We're not there yet. Yeah. We're getting there, though. I'm thinking it's madness. I think it makes people go crazy. Oh. But he uh, also said that there was someone else in the I car I guess I'm kind him. of... I'm hoping it's ghosts. Honestly, I'm I hope the beginning something... is like... The beginning was like, let me tell ghost stories, and then it's like... Ghosts. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping I'm for. hoping for something literal and not psychological. We. Are you open to psychological, or are you just hoping it's not? I'm just hoping it's not. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. When I hear Spire in the Woods, I'm, I'm hoping for like a... I want something literal. Yeah. I want something with a physical presence. Yeah. That's just me. No. I... I, I it, I'm just stupid. There's, no, there's some misdirection here, and the, the setup for the story is saying that... Look um, what I know. It's saying, look what I know, but it's also saying that trauma sometimes is not inherent. Trauma is sometimes caused. And I think... The trauma that Rob has experienced that led him to his death is a trauma he experienced at the Spire, and we're going to figure out how. Okay. We're going to figure out the how, the why, and I think the who is going to remain a mystery for a little while. Okay, I see. I'm getting there. So, Alina, she was born in Russia. Her parents managed to emigrate, yada, yada, yada. Kids. Kids... Kids used to tease her about her family being Soviet spies, but when she came, sir, sorry, God, when she started to come into her, into her own, the teasing turned to flirting. She never quite reached the ranks of our school's alpha females, but her je ne sais quoi, je ne sais quoi, je ne sais quoi, was undeniable. Alina was pretty, sure, but not unattainably, uh, not unattainably so. She was smart, but not so much so that it was intimidating. She had fair skin and wild hair. Her eyes would sparkle whenever she had something clever, said something clever. And she had this smirk that had spread like a wave from left to right across her lips. But most alluring of all, Alina had this attitude, this way of carrying herself. It was like she was sure, wherever she was, was the place to be. It was infectious. I knew someone like that in high school. Yeah. Totally. In short, Alina Aminov was exactly the kind of girl that an unpopular guy could fool himself into thinking he had a chance with. 
God knows I did when I found, found myself suddenly talking to her in late November of 1999. She's the type of girl who probably isn't aware that Rob's, like, in love with her, so she'll talk to him all the fucking time mm. and not pick up on the, you know, the subtext mm -hmm. of his, you know, of his intentions to, to woo her. And when he probably does say something, it comes off super embarrassing because she probably hadn't intended. You know, friendliness can be very becoming to, uh, mm -hmm. to the right type of person. So... Uh, that spells danger pretty, pretty well. I try to avoid those feelings. Um, just because a woman is nice to you does not mean they want to sleep with you. Sure. <laughs> That's tough for a lot of people. Yeah, it is. It's, it's difficult. You have to have strong mental fortitude. Yeah, I, I rolled pretty, pretty high intelligence and wisdom. That's a, that's a joke. I didn't, yeah. I didn't do that at all. <clears throat> yeah. Me too. I've never I'm been. Really smart. I've never really been hurt. I've never been hurt you've by anybody. You've never been hurt, and you're anybody. super smart. I'm impervious to death and heartbreak. Out of here, haters. <laughs> Back off, man. This heart is whole. <laughs> I hate you right now. <laughs> Um, Alina had grown quieter in the weeks that followed Rob's death. Even as the rest of the school began to show signs of moving on, she continued to retreat. She quit her job, and though I don't quite remember when the, when the season started and stopped, neither quit or never signed up for cross-country that year. She just sort of shut herself off from the world and everyone in it, which was why I was so surprised to see her at Drew DeLuca's birthday party. She looked nervous. This used to be her element, and no one at Drew's that night was inclined to blame her for Rob's death. This was not his circle of friends. This was hers. But whenever she approached someone or tried to join in a conversation, she looked like a gazelle approaching a watering hole. It wasn't sure it was safe. And once she was in the conversation, she mainly shifted her weight from foot to foot or fidgeted with some part of her outfit never really engaging anyone unless they addressed her directly. I was telling a friend of mine about a recent trip I had taken to Greenfield with Scary Kenny. The only one... Scary Carrie. Kenny, not Kenny. Scary Carrie. The Alliteration. Scary Carrie. Um, Scary Kenny would have worked, though. Cool. Wow, Kenny is really cool. Oh, fuck Kenny. I like Scary Carrie. I, a trip to Greenfield I took with Scary Carrie. The only one I could ever drag along on my ghost hunting trips... Mm -hmm when I felt a gentle tug on the back of my shirt. I turned around half expecting to see DeLuca's kid sister, but it was Alina. Can we talk? Oh, yeah, sure. Outside? She looked over my shoulder at my friend before adding, Alone? <laughs> if it had been spring, let me tell you, I would have been thrilled by the prospect of Alina Amineff pulling me out of a party to talk alone. Quote, unquote, <laughs> talk. Yeah, fuck, am I right? Uh, but it wasn't spring, and it was New Hampshire in late November. We stood on the back deck, our jackets pulled tightly around us, our breath hanging. <laughs> God, what's the fuck wrong with me? God. You got like four pages left. Just fucking get through it. Why did I read that like that? I said, <laughs> we had our jackets pulled tight. 
highly. I liked it. No, (laughs) I sexualized everything. I'm keeping it. Our breath hanging in the get this air plane to verb C. (laughs) She had. So she said she had heard from Christy McDowell that I knew a lot about ghost stories. Christy was quite possibly my oldest friend in the world, and yes, it was true. I knew a lot about ghost stories. I know a lot about many things. I was a genius. I was raised Catholic. And then you're not a genius. And blessed with kind, warm-hearted priests. Or parents. Jesus. That was a How mistake. How did you get to that assumption? <laughs> I saw P, and I'm thinking Catholics. Oh, parents. I was raised Catholic, blessed with kind, warm-hearted parents, <laughs> whom inherited whom I was... I wasn't going to say anything. My parents, oh, I wanted to please them. Um, I was always eager to please. This meant that I took my Catholicism and my schoolwork very seriously. Virgin. Which eventually led to a struggle between my rational and spiritual beliefs. And that was only exacerbated by my growing awareness of the sexual abuse scandal and the church's subsequent cover-up. I'd hated losing my faith. I wanted desperately to believe as I had as a child. So when most teenagers had shut the book on ghost stories, relegating them to little more than childhood memories, or an excuse to scare a girl you wanted to put your arm around, I doubled down. I thought if I could find something, some shred of evidence in support of the supernatural, that would keep the door to the spiritual world open for me, even if only for a time. I'm not just a virgin. I'm a super virgin. Supernatural virgin. Of course, I didn't share all of that with Alina. Instead, I tried to act casual. Casual, bordering on slightly disinterested. That works perfectly for women, though. What are you suggesting about women? Are you... I'm suggesting that if you act disinterested, they'll want to talk to you more. Yeah. Don't assume what they want. Whatever, man. Can we stop talking about... No, see, I'm acting disinterested in what you have to say, and it's working. It's not. I want to go home. (laughs) (laughs) I just didn't expect you to say that. I want to go home. Like, you drove here. You could fucking leave. (laughs) Ow. Yeah, well, kind of. I thought she could see through me. Why? Alina began fishing around inside her jacket. You have to swear to me that you'll never tell anyone I showed you this. I swore. Alina pulled her hand out from her coat. Her dainty fingers clutched an envelope like it was a particularly delicate piece of glass. She handed me Rob's suicide note. Opening the envelope and unfolding the pages felt like a profound invasion of privacy. But who could resist reading it? When it was handed to you by her. I included by her. What were Rob Kennan's last words to the girl he'd been obsessed with for years? The girl many of his peers believed was the reason he killed himself. Thirteen years have passed, leaving me with little more than an impression of what the note said. But even if I had remembered it exactly, I think this would still be where I'd, I'd draw the line. What I will say is that it was very earnest. Rob had been depressed for a long time. He felt horrible about leaving his family and friends to deal with the aftermath of his suicide. 
but he also felt isolated in a very profound way and more than anything just wanted it to stop. I also don't mind sharing that he was very effusive in his praises for Alina, but I got the distinct impression he didn't know her as well as he thought. He wrote about her in these florid terms full of superlatives. Twice he said he didn't think he could live without her, but ultimately nothing he said was very specific. Everyone thinks the first love of their life is the most special, most attractive person in the world and that no one could ever appreciate them as deeply as they do. I felt for him. I really did. But reading it, I didn't feel as though I'd gotten to know him any better. Not really. As I finished reading, I looked up and met Alina's gaze. She was looking at me expectantly, but I wasn't making the connection. What does this have to do with ghost stories? I asked. Alina pointed to the bottom of one of the paragraphs, expounding on why Rob wanted to take his own life. It read, And every hour I see her face as she runs the endless race. Her face. I had assumed he was talking about Alina and her years of running track and cross-country, but if that was the case, why would he write her and not your in a letter that was to Alina? A shiver ran up my spine. It wasn't the cold, it was more like someone had walked over my grave. The endless race, I said. Yes. For a split second, Alina was her former self again. God, I was starting to think I'd imagined it. Tell me you remember where it's from. I mumbled the line, and every hour I see her face as she runs the endless race, a couple of times under my breath. I knew that I had heard it before, but where? I was positive it was a ghost story. But I'd, I'd read literally hundreds, if not thousands of them, and they had a tendency to bleed together. <sighs> no. Shit. Alina banged her fist hard against the railing of the deck. But it's a ghost story, right? Yeah, I, I know. I know it. I, I just can't, um... I, I trailed off, racking my brain. Alina started drifting back towards Drew's house. If you think of it... I cut her off. Absolutely. So much for slightly disinterested. Asshole. As she reached the door, she turned and looked at me. She stared at me for a long time. Longer than any pause in a conversation should be. I think he mentioned it in the one he wrote to Nate Fletcher, too. I stared back at Alina's. Fletcher's letter? Yeah. Could you find out? That was a line I didn't think I could cross. Yeah, yeah. But of course. Milady. And the tips <laughs> for the lady. Alina, that's the end of milady. I, um, I really like it. It um yeah, it, it yeah, rides nice. it rides a line of being believable for a weird kind of kid to write something like this, or maybe looking back on it, writing something like this. Um, it's also just kind of factual and flowing enough to keep me interested in the mystery. You know, I realized something the other day when I was. Uh, Breaking down a, uh, a YouTuber, he breaks down why mystery is probably one of the most, you know, compelling narrative forms we have. Yeah. Um, and how it feeds into so many other, you know, themes and genres. Like, horror is mostly a mystery. 
you got detective noirs, you got thrillers, you got murders, you've got um, conspiracies, even uh, religions deal with mystery um, and intrigue. Um, I like it. You think this is going to take a more scary turn or more tough to tell? Party boys, tough to tell. I don't. I think if people are calling this one of the best things they've read on No Sleep, I'd like to think it's going to be more than just some Hardy Boys bullshit. I think it's going to be haunting. Okay. I'm thinking more, um, if it's ghosts, it's going to be more along the lines of Haunting of Hill House, as uh, opposed which to... Which I haven't watched, still. <laughs> Fuck. Alright, we're watching that after this episode. We're starting the first episode and we're watching that, because you need to fucking watch that show. Alright. Alright, um, alright, don't shoot me. Put the gun down. Hey, cat, <laughs> look now. You're gonna watch That's a load it, you're of gonna gun. fucking like it. There's a load of gun I got all in your right. head. I wanna get through uh, part two in this episode, but I'm also not wanting to make this episode three hours long, so stay with me. Uh, is there anything you wanna say before we jump into part two? I, no. sh- I shared my opinion. Oh, my opinion? Um, my opinion of what I just read uh, was that. I didn't like the writing style. You don't like it. I personally do not. Hmm. I, I thought there was a lot of... Um, I thought there was too much explanatory stuff. Sure. Uh, versus writing out the exposition. I, I, I don't know. I'm not a writer. Oh, uh, no. Let me, More uh, brilliant writers would put the exposition later in the story and kind of pepper it throughout. You're absolutely correct. I can kind of appreciate like there's a there's a structure I forget what code it's called but there's a structure where um, like a writing structure a narrative structure where literally all the exposition happens at the beginning of the story because the rest of it is just rise mm. rise of action to meet climax to meet fall to meet conclusion and I write like that I like to get my character development probably 80% out of the way at the beginning of a narrative. I'll pepper in spots, maybe even spots that the original protagonist might not know, getting into it later. But um, I do think exposition could be more uh, cleverly adapted. I think exposition can, can be better written into conversations as opposed to some guy just saying, and this is what's happening, and this is what happened. Yeah. And I will agree with you there that there's a sort of, I won't say laziness, but a kind of directness to how this all laid out. Yeah. That I, that I could say kinda like, like, makes sense. Kind of like a um, lot, of, lot of showing, of like, or a lot of explaining of like uh, what happened at the actual car scene instead of like hearing, uh, well, I guess he wasn't there, but um, at school. Like, a lot of just description of the... Explaining that the kids were upset and that it was like this... He described this Tartarus, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the teachers, you know... I don't know. Anyway, anyway. What I what I also wanted to bring up was that uh, at the very beginning of the story, into the development of the characters, I, I didn't see where that got connected. It felt very weird for me. It is a little weird right now. I think um, what I'm running with and something I kind of experienced as a child is the friend of a friend notion. I think um, 
We're not meant to feel like this kid has much. We're not meant to feel that he has connections. I think what is happening is things are falling into his lap, and much like how a small town can kind of operate, everything is going off of hearsay, so I do expect a lot of the things that he just said to kind of word of the night subvert themselves and be twisted and put on their head. Rob was depressed, but he wasn't being freaky about it. Like, as the ending revealed, he was actually being pretty earnest, if not disconnected, with his note. So nothing freaky about what he said to Alina came off, despite the fact that everyone in, you know, the social circles said that Rob was a obsessive weirdo. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think more of that is gonna happen, and hopefully be a little bit smoother yeah. on the uh, on the audience. Yeah, I'm just saying that it's been a while since we've read something, and I can appreciate someone who uh, dedicates a lot to setup. I see. Oh, I see the dedication. I get, it's just personal preference, I guess. Sure. No, it's it's. Uh, no, oh, definitely not bad. Not, not, not. I don't think it's bad. It's definitely. just not your taste. Yeah. Hmm. Um, we'll see though. Go forward. It could just be the beginning of this thing. It could. Yeah. It very well could have just been the first section. This is part two. And I realized the other day that um, the reason why most things on Reddit are split into parts is purely just due to length. Hmm. So you know. There's nothing to denote this section from the last. Uh, I think it's just going to be easier us, easier for us to say parts in case people are following along on Reddit No Sleep or, uh, you know, for how we're doing the episodes. To, to say it, to explain it right now, sure. uh, we're doing two, ep- two parts an episode. So it's if there are ten parts, then the audience knows that we're going to have five episodes. So this is going to be the second part of episode one. Uh, Spire in the Woods. A few days after Rob's suicide, a handful of young reporters showed up at the school trawling for quotes. Before the faculty could chase them out, they pushed hard for someone, anyone, to give support to the lone wolf school shooter angle. Rob's real friends flatly refused to speak to the reporters, but there's a certain element among young people who only want attention, and the same kids who showed up for the grief counseling, despite not never having been particularly close to Rob, were the first in line to provide quotes. The next day, the local paper was filled with statements like, No one really knew him, says student Melissa Bennett. For Fletch, it was a slap in the face. What? Oh. Yeah. What? Cause she didn't know him, nobody could? About a week or so after Rob died, Fletch resumed picking me up in the morning. I don't count? Murph doesn't count? Fucking bullshit! Listening to him rant about the story in the paper made me think that maybe I should have spoken to the reporters. I wouldn't have pretended to have had any special insight into Rob's mental state, but it might have been nice for his friends and families to have seen something simple and honest, something that didn't fit into the lone wolf narrative. Even if it was nothing more than saying, he had friends, they're just not talking to you because they're grieving, you heartless parasite. 
I wish I had done that, but I didn't. I also wish I could tell you that I was the one who wrote an op-ed the following week roasting the reporters for coming into a school and pushing students, still reeling from the shock of losing a classmate, and spouting a whole bunch of pop-psych pseudoscientific nonsense, but that wasn't me either. That was some senior I didn't know very well. <laughs> I had made a few tenuous attempts at getting Fletch to open up about Rob. The best I could manage was to get him ranting about the kids in the grief counseling sessions that didn't belong. Talking about them got the normally placid Fletch so angry I thought he might have an aneurysm. After that, I quickly gave up. Once I resolved not to pry into Fletch's life, our morning rides settled into something almost comfortable. Comfortable. Our casual friendship was like a knee recovering from an injury, fine so long as we didn't put any weight on it. And that was still the state of things the day we returned to school after Drew DeLuca's birthday. Today, tracking down the story that led me to the spire would have been a piece of cake. For me, anyways, for you, I've changed too many details. Pause real quick. So, wait a minute. This is being written at a different time than 99? Yes. Okay. Well, he's talking about everything in the past. Okay. He, ha he has been since the, you know, the first paragraph. That's okay. Um, okay, I, I kind of forgot is, about that. Which is why I'm saying there's so much more development to the setup is that, you know, I loved this twist in episode, I think it's like 117. You remember Plot Holes, the story you really wanted to read? Yeah. That I ended up reading with someone else? It ended up being really fucking good, and the ending is great, but, like, the ending could go that way, you know? Um, it, it could completely turn shit on its head, so expecting one thing is different from how things play out, is all I'm saying. Setup can be a really big tool for misdirection. I could have typed that little rhyming snippet of Rob's suicide note into Google, and had my answer in seconds, but the internet wasn't as robust back then. Hell, I'm pretty sure in 1999 I was still using Hotbot. Nonetheless, from the second I returned from Drew's until school started on Monday, I spent every waking minute scouring every Haunted Places book and paranormal website I could find looking for the phrase, and every hour I see her face as she runs the endless race, or some variation. By the end of the weekend, half the contents of my bookshelf had been redistributed throughout the house, and I had skimmed countless Geocities uh, Geo pages, scrolling past Dancing Ghost GIF after Dancing Ghost GIF until my eyes bled, but still had nothing to show for it. I knew I couldn't bring it up with Fletch, not directly at any rate. Rob's death was still a raw nerve, so I went to the only person who knew even more about ghost stories than I did. Scary Carrie. Growing up in the woods of New Hampshire at the foot of the White Mountains wasn't all bad. My school had a hiking club that also taught us elementary wilderness survival skills. It was also immensely popular, mainly because it culminated in a week-long hike, which meant you got to miss a week of school. As freshmen, my friends and I all signed up to go together that fall, but two weeks before the big event, I came down with a case of antibiotic-resistant strep throat and had to have my tonsils removed. Fun. Since the program was extremely popular, each student could only partake once. Even though I was allowed to make up my hike the following winter, it was still a bit of a letdown since none of my friends could come with me. I was intensely jealous when my friends returned from the hike closer than 
ever, with a slew of in-jokes and stories from their week in the woods, but by the time I left for my hike a few months later, things in my circle of friends had already returned to normal, and I was mainly just concerned about being stuck in the woods with random classmates I had little in common with. If you've never spent all day hiking with large frame pack, you may not appreciate how grueling it could be. There's a high washout rate of kids who get sick or throw in the towel and have to be picked up and taken home. There's an even higher rate of kids who never shut up about how much their feet hurt, and by the time we stopped for lunch on the first day, any concerns I had of loneliness were replaced by my seething hatred for the group of kids. Those of us capable of keeping our mouths shut, at least about our feet, quickly bonded. That's how I became friends with Scary Carrie Peterson, the last person on earth I ever imagined I'd become close to. Carrie was one of those unlucky people that seemed scientifically designated to be picked on. She was nearly six... So Carrie's a girl. She was nearly six feet tall, quite overweight, crap at school, poor by the standards of my admittedly affluent town, and cursed with a head size of a large pumpkin. I'd had classes with Carrie on and off for the last nine years, and before the hike I doubt I'd spoken more than two words to her. Although in fairness to me, in the middle school, she had deepened her own isolation for most of the class by becoming intensely goth in the baby bat way of the late 90s teens. There was a blonde girl on the hike, I think her name was Stephanie Foster, that two hours earlier I had found very cute, and despite her whining, I was still thinking I might like to get to know her better before she let this gem slip. God, I just wanted to miss school. Why do they have to walk so much? I rolled my eyes, but didn't say anything. Carrie, however, could not let it slide. What the hell did you think this think a hike was? It's a it's a fat girl. Fat goth girl. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. Um that said that line? Yeah. Oh, Carrie said it. I thought it was me saying or rather narrator saying it. I'm saying narrator. Uh, yeah, the quote I thought the narrator was speaking. That's why I said it like that. That was stupid girl, Stephanie Foster. God, I just wanted to miss school. Why do we have to walk so much? I rolled my eyes but didn't say anything. Carrie, however, could not let it slide. All right, fat goth girl, here we go. Hey, what the hell did you think a hike was? Beautiful. <laughs> Stephanie looked at her like Carrie said something she'd scraped off the bottom of her boots. Nobody's talking to you. Nobody wants to fucking listen to you. Hey. I, could, I couldn't help it. I laughed. <laughs> I still didn't think of Scary Carrie as a friend yet, but it was suddenly a lot harder not to like her. Not with this kind of voice. Hey, I'm walking in. <laughs> After lunch, our line of hikers silently and seemingly unconsciously rearranged our marching order with the whiners taking up the rear and those of us who could keep our aches and pains to ourselves leading the back. By dinner time, Stephanie and three other kids from her clique, perhaps unimpressed by the franks and beans we'd be having, decided to throw in the towel. It gets dark early in winter, dark and cold. On the fall hike after dinner, my friends were able to wander around the campsite quite a bit, but for us, there was only one thing to do. Stick close to the fire. And that's where Carrie and I really bonded. Someone half-jokingly asked if anyone knew any good ghost stories. 
There was the usual student reluctance to step up and put yourself out there to be judged, and our chaperones weren't terribly interested in anything but double-checking our work, setting up the tents. But after a few false starts from the other kids, I decided to tell an old standby, the story of an old woman that lived in Maine who had been caught abducting pets and small children. It was said that she was a witch who ate the flesh of her victims and turned their bones into china. The second I finished, Carrie started telling one of hers. We took turns telling stories the rest of the night and continued telling stories every night after dinner for the rest of the week. Between campsites, we walked next to each other, chatting about the kind of crap that seemed important to teenagers and quizzing each other on the local paranormal hotspots. Back at school, after the hike, maintaining my friendship with Carrie proved to be tricky. My friends never really understood the bond. They weren't mean to her, not exactly, but despite my efforts to bring her into the fold, they never really embraced her. As for the few friends Carrie had, she couldn't mask their disdain for my taste in music and clothing, while others were the sort of kids that were desperate and clingy, two things I always found it hard to stomach. But Carrie was one of the only people I could talk to about losing my faith, and she was always game to get together and go on one of my very fruitless ghost hunts so we stayed in regular contact. The Monday after my conversation with Alina, I tracked down Scary Carrie in the cafeteria, sitting with a few other goth kids. We talked a lot after Rob killed himself, in part because I knew that Carrie, from time to time, had suicidal thoughts of her own. It may have been the height of stupidity, but until Rob Kennan actually did it, it actually ended his own life. I never thought that it could happen in my at least not to anyone I knew. After Rob had done it though, I knew I couldn't let Carrie slip down the same path, and for a while, I doubled my efforts to spend time with her. But after one particularly awkward night ghost hunting in Greenfield, well, we had fallen back to the status quo. Carrie, you mind if I steal you for a second? I asked, pointing back out to the hallway behind me. As Carrie rose to leave, Kim Murray leaned over to one of the other friends and said, Aww. Like she'd just seen something cute. Carrie's face splotches of scarlet and shot Kim a look of pure hatred. Forget it. Come on, I said. I didn't know what Carrie had told Kim about Greenfield, but sure didn't want to deal with it. Once we were in the hallway and out of anyone's earshot, I recounted the events of Drew DeLuca's party. She let you read the note he left her? Even though just a month ago we'd spent several hours being lectured by our guidance counselors about the differences between depression, the true depression that was a psychological illness, and being sad, I think Carrie still had trouble believing anyone was more miserable than she was. Carrie stepped closer to me and dropped her voice to a whisper. Why'd he do it? Was it... was it her fault? I trusted Carrie, but I was reluctant to share too much with her. I hate to admit it, but in spite of having counted Carrie amongst my friends for the past year, Alina's pretty face had flipped my loyalties completely to her in one conversation. I cut to the chase. Rob wrote something in Alina's note. I swear it's from a ghost story, but I can't remember which one. What did it say? And every hour I see her face as she runs the endless race. Scary Carrie shivered. <sighs> the widower's clock. I hate that one. 
While my story begins with Rob Kennan killing himself, the story of the spire in the woods begins almost a century earlier in the former town of Enfield, Massachusetts, a few years before it was destroyed. In the late 1920s, an elderly clockmaker from Boston married a beautiful young woman, and the two of them settled in Enfield. He was a master craftsman, the finest in the world, able to create machines of such complexity and precision that he was often called the Da Vinci of clockworks, no small feat considering Da Vinci himself had designed great clockwork automatons. She was a great beauty, refined and cultivated. Before meeting the clockmaker, she had been celebrated by the Boston Brahmin for her wit and for throwing the very best dinner parties. The clockmaker had amassed a great fortune, but he, like all great artists, was unsatisfied by all the products of his lifetime of labor. He wanted to build one more clock, a clock that would surpass even Munich's Rathaus Glockenspiel in the artistry and complexity. He completed his plans in the spring of 1931, and they were beautiful. His designs were classic yet modern, complex yet clean. Each hour when the bells called out the time, the automatons would dance forth from their hidden chambers and symbolically reenact different battles of the Civil War, each day telling the story of how the North came to vanquish the South. Lowell and Boston both desperately wanted the clock tower, as did a few of the larger manufacturing and shipping companies, but before construction could begin on any town hall, courthouse, or corporate headquarters, the Depression hit. All the suitors disappeared in short order, one after the other, leaving the clockmaker alone with his plans. Miserable and depressed, the clockmaker feared he would die before he'd ever have the chance to see his vision complete. Reminds me of Rob. He resolved that he wouldn't let that happen and began spending his considerable fortune building the tower on his own, as an addition to his own house in Enfield. One day, the clock tower nearly complete, the clockmaker returned home from picking up a custom-made part he arrived much earlier than anticipated to discover his wife in bed with another man, one of his laborers. The clockmaker burst into the room and screamed at his wife and her lover. He had never been so angry or humiliated in all his life, but he didn't yet know what humiliation was. Rather than beg for his forgiveness or cower before him or even flee the room in shame, the clockmaker's wife and her lover laughed at him. They told the clockmaker that he was an impotent old man and they were unafraid of him. Run along back to your little gears and springs, his wife said. Maybe if you're nice and quiet, I'll still fix you your dinner tonight. The clockmaker, in a state of shock, slunk back to his gears and springs, but rather than going to work on the clock, he went to work on a plan. He removed the automatons from their posts and set all of his meager strength to coiling the huge spring that ran beneath their tracks. He laid out his tools so they would be near at hand, and then he waited, listening to the rhythms of his marriage bed slamming again and again against the wall. Eventually, the rhythmic thuds reached their crescendo and then fell quiet. Soon after, he heard his wife call out to him, but he said nothing. 
Her calls grew in urgency, and repentance crept into her voice. Could she really be concerned for him? After what she did? After what she said? Still, the clockmaker stayed silent. When the laborer entered the room, which was little more than a giant gearbox, the clockmaker stared at him but did not move. The laborer leaned back out of the room and called to his lover. He's in here. He hasn't done anything stupid, has he? No, he's fine. The clockmaker was not fine. The laborer approached the clockmaker as cautiously as a man approaches an unfamiliar dog. It's your fault, you know. The clockmaker, his watery eyes unblinking, only responded by staring as the younger man approached him. Fine lady like that? Fancy? You can't keep her in a cage, especially around here in this dreadful place, and expect she won't get bored. It was at that exact moment that the laborer stepped across the path of the automaton's track, and the clockmaker yanked out the pin holding the spring coiled. The post, unburdened of a man-sized figure, brimming with heavy metal gears, raced along the track and collided with the soft flesh of the laborer's leg. The crack of the bone splintering was even louder than the man's screams. The clockmaker's wife called out at the sound of her lover's cries. I'm coming! I'm coming! She already did. Hey, Zinga. The clockmaker picked up a large wrench and moved beside the door. As his wife rushed in, her eyes searching for her lover, the clockmaker crept up behind her and brought the wrench down on her skull. She awoke hours later, with shooting pains running through her legs. She tried to look down, but her head was in agony to move. The clockmaker stood over her, his mallet hammering the metal support rods into her thighs. Her lover was already mounted to the post, ready to fill in for the automaton and dance when the hour struck. Just as with the Rathaus Glockenspiel in Munich, the clockmaker's creation was hailed as a great artistic achievement. Crowds gathered on the formerly quiet street to watch the myriad Union and Rebel automatons zip along their tracks, round and round in an endless race. It was weeks before anyone noticed something wrong with two of the automatons. Their lacquered veneer bulged in weird places and looked slick, as if were wet. Then one day the finish gave way and the crowd, which was... Mostly children at this point watched in horror as two corpses zipped about the track, chasing and stabbing each other with bayonets. They say even after the clock was stopped and the lovers were laid to rest, all those who saw the wife's face were haunted by visions of her endlessly running along her track. I didn't have to ask why Scary Carrie hated the story of the widower's clock. She was the one who pointed out to me how ghost stories were frequently used as a form of social control. Here was another story where an unfaithful woman was put to death by an angry husband, and crueler still, children were also punished. Children whose only crime was having seen the corpse of the unfaithful woman, a corpse that the enraged husband put on display. I couldn't wait to tell Alina, I didn't have any classes with her, but we had lunch the same period. 
Alina was sitting at a table with her friends. Ordinarily, it would have been intimidating to walk up to a table of girls, most of whom were pretty and toned from years of soccer, field hockey, and track, but I could tell by the way Alina was sitting with her tray in her lap, her chair pushed back from the table, that she would like nothing more than an excuse to leave. We were allowed to eat our lunches outside, but no one ever did during the winter. We got some funny looks pushing open the doors and slipping out onto the yellowing grass. I'd been looking forward to telling Alina the story of the widower's clock for hours, but now that I was alone with her, I hesitated to jump straight into it. Are you okay? Alina shifted uncomfortably. Yeah, but I, well, I haven't done so great with crowds lately, especially when I'm eating. We were huddled in the corner of the doorway, trying to use the building to block the wind. I was nervous as I reached out to rub her arm in what I hoped was an understanding and reassuring gesture. She didn't flinch or pull away, she just stared at my hand for a long second before she whispered, Thanks. I started telling her the story exactly as Carrie told it to me, but had barely begun when the switch flipped in Alina's head, and she remembered where she heard it before. East Boston camps. Pretty much everyone in our town went to summer camp there when we were kids because it it was only 15 minutes outside of Nashua. One of the counselors there had been like Carrie and me and he used to delight in telling ghost stories to the younger campers. He loved it when the kids were too scared to sleep and kept their cabin chaperones up all night. For a second I forgot why we were trying to track down the story and got lost in old memories of camp, but Alina didn't. Do you think it has anything to do with why he killed himself? Her voice was steady, but she fixed me with her eyes, and I could see how desperate she was for me to say yes, desperate to believe that it wasn't her fault. I think he suffered from depression. Alina's lip quivered and her eyes filled with tears. I hugged her. Hey, listen to me. You didn't kill him. Alina gripped the collar of my flannel shirt and buried her head against my chest. I stood there, holding her as she cried. The two of us were late for fifth period. At the end of the day, Fletch was waiting for me in the parking lot. He'd already turned his car on and cranked the heater up to full blast. Even still, we were halfway home before it was warm enough for me to open up my jacket. He stared out the window. Dude, what's going on with you and Alina? I turned to look at him, and his jaw was set, and for the first time in our lives, Fletch reminded me of his hard-ass father. I really didn't want to answer him. She asked me about a ghost story. Fletch's only answer was to let his eyes drift from the road. He studied my face for a long moment before he finally said, Which one? The widower's clock, it's the one where... I know the one. It was barely a whisper. Are you in a hurry to get home? No. Good. Fletch pulled over to the side of the road, took a shuddering breath, punched the steering wheel twice, and started bawling. He let it out, everything that he'd been holding in at school, everything that he'd been holding in around his dad, everything. Alina had been sad, Fletch was purging. During the days following Rob's suicide, seeing people break down like this was common and continued on longer in the morning counseling sessions, but at some point people put their guard back up. What had been appropriate emotions one day was suddenly back to being taboo the next, and for people like Fletch, they weren't ready to be in that emotional space again. 
Once he'd gotten the most out of it, we started talking, like really talking. I I know it's unfair, he said. I, I know it's not. I mean, she always tried to be nice, but I'm I'm sorry. I fucking I just fucking hate her. I didn't exactly blame Fletch for how he felt Nate was a good guy. He knew that Alina wasn't obligated to reciprocate Rob's feelings simply because he was nice to her, but he had watched his friend, dead or alive, burn for four hours, and a part of him wondered if it was still have happened if only Alina had given Rob a chance. That's too much pressure to put on somebody, I said. I know. I reminded Fletch of everything that the counselors had told us, that feeling sad when you're being rejected is normal, natural behavior, healthy behavior. You should feel sad whenever someone doesn't reciprocate your feelings. It is sad, but while there's always something that makes a person decide they want to kill themselves now and not tomorrow or last week, it's not the final straw that breaks their back, it's all the weight that came before it, the underlying mental illness. Flesh looked down at his hands. Yeah. There was no conviction in his voice. Fletch pulled his t-shirt up to his face and wiped the last of his tears away, and he then started his car and we were moving, riding in silence. And after a few minutes, Fletch spoke again. He thinks... He thought he found it. What? The widower's clock. It was my turn to stare at Nate. That's impossible. Do you want to read it? The note he left me? In the period of time between the end of the Civil War and the start of the 1920s, the population of Boston, Massachusetts more than tripled. In fact, there were more people living in Boston in the 1920s than there are today. This put an amazing strain on the city's resources, particularly on their drinking water. To solve their water problem, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts undertook a number of public works projects redirecting rivers and creating reservoirs, the largest of which is the Quabbin Reservoir in the Swift River Valley of western Massachusetts. The Quabbin covers nearly 40 square miles and sports an impressive 180 miles of shoreline. Creating the Quabbin meant flooding much of the Swift River Valley, and the Swift River Valley was home to four towns. Dana in the northeast and Prescott in the northwest, with Greenwich wedged between them and Enfield in the southwest. Enfield, where the widower's clock was supposedly built, now sits mostly submerged by 412 billion gallons of water. How in the hell would Robert Kennan have found anything there at all? What would there even be to find sixty-some-odd years and a flood after the fact? And it's not as though the Swift River Valley was flooded overnight. The people had years to move their homes and relocate out of the flood zone. Why would they leave behind a whole building? And if it was there, wouldn't a clock tower peeking up from the water tend to draw the eye? I never felt comfortable in Fletcher's house. The first floor felt like a museum. Mr. Fletcher was strict, but it was Mrs. Fletcher who wanted her house to always resemble the cover of an interior decorating magazine. Call me crazy, but what's the point of having a house you're afraid to live in? Fletcher's room, on the other hand, had the opposite problem. 
The first time I came over at Mrs. Fletcher's insistence, I had to take my shoes off to go upstairs and then put them back on in Nate's room because while he was sure there was broken glass somewhere, Fletch wasn't quite sure where. As you can imagine, Nathan Fletcher and his mother fought quite a bit. Fletch gestured to his bed and I parked myself on the corner of it with the fewest dirty clothes. What few prized possessions he owned, Fletch kept in the bottom right-hand drawer of his desk, but that's not where he pulled Rob's letter out from. No, the letter he kept tucked in a book on top of his nightstand. It occurred to me that he must have been reading it often. The invasion of privacy I felt when I read Alina's letter was nothing compared to reading Fletch's as he sat next to me. The letter was exponentially more personal. Rob was exposed on the page. Reading it made me feel like I had walked in on him naked. Whereas the letter Rob gave to Alina revealed a little about himself and next to nothing about her, this letter revealed a great deal about Rob as well as Fletch. Fletch and Rob had bonded when Rob was new and Fletch was going through his awkward phase. Apparently I had been wrong about Fletch not getting down whenever he said the wrong thing. Warm and funny and confident around his friends, Fletch had spent most of his early teens afraid to speak in public. Maybe I hadn't noticed because he was older and I sort of looked up to him, or maybe I was just too absorbed in my own insecurities to see that anyone else had their own. Either way, it was news to me. Rob's note to Alina had expressed a measure of guilt for leaving everyone behind to deal with the aftermath of his death, but in the letter he gave to Fletch, the guilt he articulated feeling was, was for having lived. He apologized profusely for having been a burden. He described himself alternatively as a baby and a leech, a drain on anyone foolish enough to move too close to him. And though he knew no one would see it like he did, Rob viewed his suicide as a charitable act. He was ridding his friends and family of himself. Despite my discomfort reading such a personal letter, I devoured every word. I consumed the letter, hoping each line that the next would finally illuminate for me what Robert Kennan had to do with the widower's clock, and finally tucked amidst a list of reasons why he was going to go through with it, was what I'd been looking for. I will soon join them, staring at her face as she runs the endless race. I looked up disappointed and annoyed with how little Rob had written about the widower's clock to find Fletch rocking back and forth in his chair, and it made me feel like a piece of shit. You said he thought he'd found it. Yeah. How? Nathan Fletcher looked up at me with watery eyes and told me everything. Rob's medication had his depression mostly under control for the last three years. He still had bouts, but they were less frequent and less severe than they had been before. Along with his much better improved disposition, Rob had also been sleeping better, eating more, and his energy was way up. But he was never exactly happy. See, that's something most people don't understand about depression. It's not a mood, it's a disorder. Having the symptoms of his disorder in check didn't make Rob happy. It made him not depressed. Rob still struggled to fit in and enjoy life. He was still unpopular. He was still misunderstood. One of the few things that Robert Kennan really enjoyed was running. He especially enjoyed running cross-country. 
If I had to guess what appeal long-distance running had felt for Rob, I'd say that for someone who always felt their loneliness in a crowd, it must have been a relief to actually just be alone. Just him in the woods and the next mile. And the Quabbin Reservoir offered a lot of next miles. Rob had been exploring its trail since he was a child. When they lived in Amherst, his family used to visit the Quabbin on the weekends. They'd hike or picnic. Occasionally, Mr. Kennan would take his two sons fishing. As a teenager, Rob looked for any excuse he could find to get down there and just go, one foot in front of another, until sundown when visitors had to leave. That summer, the summer of 1999, Rob made a lot of excuses to visit the Quabbin. He had, for the third time, mustered up the courage to tell Alina Amanev how he felt about her. And for the third time, he had been rebuked, this time a little less gently than before. It left Rob with a growing impression that the love of his life found him creepy. Running was the only thing that got his mind off of it. The Fletchers had three boys. The oldest, Samuel, had gone to UMass and, after graduation, found work in the university's IT department. Fletch visited his brother often, and whenever he did, Rob would hitch a ride down to the Quabbin. Usually Fletch would drop him off in the morning, and Rob would either get picked up by his family when he still had an Amherst, or he'd call Fletch's brother from the visitor center at the south end of Windsor Dam, and Fletch would come get him. Once Rob had lost track of time and found himself, after sundown, miles from the visitor center, that's when he heard them for the first time. Bells tolling the hour. They were scarcely detectable, as if they'd traveled a great distance, and they had an odd, muffled quality that made them sound soft and deep. Rob stopped running and listened. He forgot all about Alina, forgot about contacting Fletch, forgot that he was an hour's drive away from the nearest person he knew. He stood in the woods and turned into the wind to listen to the beautiful sound. If he was anything like me when I first heard them, he was overcome by a physical sensation, a feeling like slipping under a warm blanket on a cold night. And then they were gone. Rob found himself once more in the dark woods with no idea how he'd get home. There's a trailer park, somewhat unusual in Massachusetts, a couple of miles southeast to the visitor's center. Rob was lucky enough to get picked up on the road by one of its residents. She was probably barely 40, but looked like she was pushing 60, smoked continuously, and was the one who told Rob about what she called the spire in the woods. To her, the spire in the woods wasn't a ghost story, it was simply a fact of life, and like blind curves and sinkholes, one that was best to be avoided. She didn't have a first-hand account of her own, but she'd heard plenty of stories. She knew that some of the boys from her trailer park enjoyed getting drunk, getting stoned, and pissing in the reservoir late at night. They got a little thrill out of the idea that somewhere in Boston, some Harvard grad was drinking their urine. Occasionally, one of these boys would come back to his trailer unsettled after having heard the eerie beauty of the bells. The Quabbin Reservoir is peppered with islands. The woman said that the source of the bells was one of them, an island just to the north of where the old Ware Enfield Road turns into Quabbin Hill. Somewhere, hidden in the island's wild-grown trees, 
the peak of an old spire, the sort you might see on top of a church, juts up out of the ground. Now and again someone went looking for it and never came back. Rumor around the trailer park was that back in 1996 John Wilkins and his cousin Anna found it, but only John came back. He killed himself about a month later. Since then, the park mothers have kept an extra close watch on the boys. Rob didn't really believe any of it. He wasn't like me. Spire in the Woods wasn't a spiritual quest. He wasn't trying to cling to the last lingering shreds of his faith. He just wanted to hear that sound again, hear the bells as they chimed the hour, have that feeling of warmth and security wash over him. In the last weeks that followed, Rob thought of nothing except the sound of the bells. Fletch thought that Rob was embellishing the incident, letting his memory get the best of him, but Rob was adamant that they were the most beautiful sound he'd ever heard. He insisted that something in the aging bells, or the wind as it carried the tolling through the woods, or the acoustics of the rock and dirt surrounding the spire, lent to them as an ethereal quality. He was determined to find the spire. Rob began researching the Quabbin, and it wasn't long before his, he realized the connection between the spire and the widower's clock. He dismissed the ghost story, but he was thrilled that a master artisan had lived in Enfield and sunk his fortune into constructing a clock tower complete with bells and chimes. Fletch was skeptical. If Rob had heard anything at all, it must have come from somewhere else, a neighboring town, a proper church tower bells weigh hundreds, if not thousands of pounds. What'd be ringing them? The wind? It'd take a hurricane. But Rob was unfazed. He was going to find the spire in the woods, he was going to hear the bells again, and Fletch didn't see the harm in letting him try. A week before school started, Fletch set off for the Amherst with Rob in tow. The pair of them spent the evening with Sam and his friends before cutting out around a quarter to ten and heading down Route 9 until they reached Old Ware Enfield Road. They parked the car near the trailer park and hoofed it the two miles or so up Old Ware to the shore of the reservoir nearest to the islands, one of which Rob was positive housed the spire in the woods. Each having worn swimsuits under their clothes, they simply stripped down, stashed their things, and slipped into the water. The nearest island lay about 200 yards from the shore, and Fletch, never a strong swimmer, quickly realized he didn't have it in him to make it there. And after a brief argument while treading water, Fletch turned back, and Rob went on alone. They'd agreed Fletch would meet Rob back by Route 9 at 4 a.m. Fletch sat on the trunk of his car for hours, swatting mosquitoes and listening to the frogs and crickets. At first he was worried about Rob. Then he was pissed that Rob had gone on by himself. Then he was worried again. Fletch set the alarm on his watch around 1.30 or so, laid on his back seat and drifted off to sleep, wishing he was drinking at his brother's. Fletch awoke to the passenger side door being thrown open, Rob jumping in and slamming the door closed. Oh my god, could you imagine that actually happening? Terrifying. <laughs> drive! Drive! Fletch scrambled into the front seat, assuming park officials or the police were in hot pursuit. He gunned the engine and pulled out of the trailer park. Fletch was already back on Route 9 before he hazarded a glance at his friend, and Rob was panicked. 
What happened? Rob said nothing. He just labored to catch his breath as he looked back towards the reservoir. Rob's adrenaline slipped away as Fletch drove. By the time they reached Sam's apartment, Rob was practically catatonic. It took me weeks to pry it out of him, Fletch said. But he saw something down there. He found the spire, I asked. Fletch nodded. Did he go in? I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah, the second part was pretty good. I like it a lot. I, um, I'm also realizing that they kind of did take my childhood dream and run with it. The question of who rings a giant tower in the middle of nowhere, you know. It's fun. It's creepy. There's definitely some symbolism, some imagery there that I really fucking like. It's almost like a fucked up Rapunzel, you know. Yeah, that's the end of part two. Sorry, we're going to get into discussion for a little bit. I think something about me just fucking loves folklore. Scary legends, scary stories, you know. It's why Whistler's was so good. The whole concept of people talked about this. This was a thing. Like, we need to research it. It has a purpose. No, it doesn't. It's just an animal. No, it's not. It's a weird thing. No, it's not. It's an animal. No, it's not. It's people. Like, like it, it, the mystery and the intrigue with lore is so much fun. And um, I, now, I now am, like, partially dedicated putting money down on it. Fucking ghosts. Yeah. Like, evil, evil imbued spirits uh, that have resonated in a place for so long, full of hatred and revenge. You know, they say that the only reason spirits linger in the mortal realm is because they have unfinished business, and unfinished business is usually dying under terrible circumstances. Dying when you didn't want to. Um... And, you know, therein lies the uh, the reason to linger. And, man, like, it's almost like woman in black level creepy. Uh, I really hope we get there. I hope a whole squad of kids go and see something and it hunts them down one by one Final Destination style. That is, like, my dream. Um, I think now that the Spire is confirmed, it's only natural that Fletch, Scary Carrie... Uh, the narrator, and Alina go look for it. Yep. And uh, they're probably all going to die, and that's great. (laughs) Not not Rob. Rob's dead. What do you mean? Rob's dead. No, sorry, not Rob. The narrator. Um, and that's that's where I will argue the plot holes. But he's, he's writing this. The plot hole spoiler is that. The end of Plot Holes, episode 117, is... Oh my, you've just realized the plot hole with this story. How can I be writing it if I'm dead? Well, that's your plot hole, and now they're coming after you. Uh, okay. It's it's great. It's a great fucking twist for how that story works. But holy shit, like, am I digging what we're putting down right now? (laughs) Sorry to spoil Plot Holes for you. You should have listened to it by now. okay. Um, yeah, so I think, uh, we have a, we have four more episodes of this to go, so it's probably going to be a lot of setup to minor point to set up 
to minor point, but I think next episode we can practically tell ourselves that we're at the spire, if not on the way to the spire by that point. Yeah. They're going to be talking about it. I imagine they'll have a crew together by part one. Because if it exists, this narrator wants to go there. He already said he was there. In fact, if you paid attention to that, like, yep. he let slip. Man, I really have to rip ass. I'm going to go over here. Let's see if I can pick it up on the mic. It's kind of a test. Testing, testing, one, two, three. I think it picked up. So, we know the narrator goes there. Yeah, he said, if Rob was anything like me, then he would have felt a physical la 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 Like a warm blanket on a cold night. Yep. I liked that, too. His metaphors were on point this, this chapter, too. Um, there were a couple things that I read where I was like, oh, shit, I, I use that metaphor all the time. You know, the only thing I would have liked to have seen a little bit more, because uh, with this scary quote... And her endless race or something. That's if it's it. like it follows and this ghost fucking runs after you, that would be fucking awesome. That would be, but I we'll <laughs> see. Um, what I'm what I'm trying to say is, um, sure. If this is about the the wife, the unfaithful wife that was killed, I would have appreciated. Well, maybe maybe we'll find out. Maybe there will be more to the story that this woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. tell me what you think. What do you imagine? If this is a haunty so, type of ghost, the. the let me also trope. remind you, let me also remind you, before you answer, that people claim to have seen someone else in the car with Rob when he died. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not refuting that. Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm saying... I'm, I guess I'm reminding the audience that, as well. Uh, the, development, the development of the, hor- the, the ghost story about the Spire in the Woods, about the, uh, the, that, that trope of an unfaithful woman and then the, the man getting revenge on her... Um, I guess the point of it being the perspective of the man as told first in the beginning of the story is to highlight that that trope and and criticize it so that later in this story we'll find more out we'll find out more about the ghost which is the woman there's more to the story and perhaps she's more innocent than the story just kind of um, yeah, I mean, being killed for the wrong reason is certainly more inspiring for a ghost to stick around yep. than being killed for something bad that they did. So this, there can be more to her story. Vengeful spirits have many weird reasons Yeah, um, in storytelling. You know, um, what's it, Marley from uh, Christmas Carol? It's like, uh, his life was fine. He was totally cool. Uh, Marley literally just gets called back because uh, he has to remind another character in the story that they're a piece of shit. <laughs> you know, like, th- th- there's a wide array of reasons why this woman could be coming back and killing children, but I don't really care because I just want it to be a ghost that comes back and kills children. That sounds great. The The setup, the exposition, the... The verbiage, the way that this guy talks about it, um, so fucking ready for this guy to tell me some details about this creepy fucking ghost lady. Um, you know, we're, we're assuming a lot 
right now that there is a ghost lady, but like I said, I would put my money on it at this point that we're going to be dealing with a ghost lady. Yeah. Um, I really fucking dig this story. So far, so good. I like part so two far, better so than part one. Part of me wishes that I had read this with Django and read Baraska with you because I feel like you would have reacted to Baraska more naturally, whereas Django just kind of laughed at it. <laughs> And uh, at the ridiculousness of it, uh, really, really ridiculousness of it, at least. Whereas I feel like Django is always looking for a pretty good ghost story. Well, we all we all have to stretch our horizons, I guess. The only reason I say that is because Django and I just tend to read. I don't know. Actually, I take that back. Django and I have read a couple ghost stories before, or maybe monsterish stories. I think um, Slenderman. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, a, a lot of what I crave on this show is just some good all-natural inspiration. That's really all I ever want out of this this program. You know, if, uh, if the story is compelling, if it's interesting, if it keeps the people guessing, then I'm happy. People were talking to me the entirety of the ABC's uh, series, the like six some episodes I did with Where Am I? Um, or is it like four, maybe four episodes? That was so fucking fruitless by the end of it that we were mad. But the way the setup worked is it asked all these questions and we expected answers. And when we didn't get them, we were mad. So... I will be mad if this story is just all set up and we never get answers. I don't think that's going to happen, but, you know, uh, I just I just want someone to tell a good story. Yeah. And there were people who liked that ABC series, who asked a ton of questions, who were also just equally frustrated at the outcome of the story, but loved getting there, like the adventure. Yeah. And, um, and that's all, and that's all I can ask for this program is that you join us on this adventure as we break this shit down and kind of get our firsthand reactions to either the both bullshit or gravitas of the, uh, you know, the setting, the context. It's like Game of Thrones. It's like Game of Thrones, you know, it's like subverted. It's like, it like subverts your expectations. No, we can't get there yet. Um, that is for an episode with Scutch McGee, because we all know the first episode with Scutch McGee has probably 45 minutes of him and I talking about uh, how we think the series is going to end, so I have to get back with him to talk about <laughs> how it didn't end either of our ways. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's funny that you mentioned that, because I, I, fuck, I fucking hated that ending. <laughs> All that work, you know, and, and I gotta give it, I gotta take my hat off to someone like Where Am I, who can watch the ending, think it's awful, but then look back and say, it's always been more about getting here, though, right, than the actual conclusion. He looks back on it and goes, I just, you know, digested eight years of wonderful material um, that kept me interested and intrigued and, you know, for, with other people and communication and, you know, like a social reaction to things for weeks on end for years. Uh, and I'm very thankful for that. And me, I look at him and I say, fuck you. None of that ending made sense. 
get, do get good scrub. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I know you agree with me. Yes. It didn't make sense. It was not logical. Let me be clear right fucking now. The ending of Game of Thrones was bullshit and completely misses the point of the entire series. And if you think the entire point of the series was about a chair, you're a fucking idiot. Moving on. Um, I did want to talk about something else. I don't think I have a ton of time for it. But here is what I'm going to say. Just right now. I no longer have episode 53. If you follow us on SoundCloud or iTunes or what have you, you may notice that the story 1999, originally uh, adapted to be called Mr. Bear's Cellar, is no longer in existence. And I'm here with Tenron to tell you right now, everyone listening, we do not in our possession in any way, shape, or form have a copy of episode 53, uh, We Dare Bear, Mr. Bear's Salaire. We will never send you that episode if you email us at lpcaptaindeath at gmail.com. Don't even try to do it because it won't happen we will say no we will say no and send you nothing good day sir um i feel obligated to say that because that episode was fucking amazing it was your first episode it means a lot to me albeit immoral for it to be on the internet albeit immoral but i'd like to think we turned it into something else and it'll always be something else to me as opposed to some douchebag story on the internet. Yeah. So that being said, hi. Um, hi. I just want to say, um, you know, episode 53, it's not around anymore. And if you email me, I will uh, absolutely not uh, send you a copy of that a two-hour-long MP3 for you to hold on to in your personal collection and not share with anyone else. Uh, Quote-unquote public viewing pleasure. Uh, if you like that episode as much as, uh, as I do, I mean, I'll definitely never send that to you. Um, I dare not say I like immoral things. <laughs> But I like immoral things. <laughs> yeah, we all, we all do. <laughs> so that was episode 135. Um, I really don't know what to call this other than uh, point, p- Pointy Tower in Woods, Spire in Woods. It's almost like I don't fully in, you know, you encapsulate it, what the story's about just You can yet. call it Revenge. It's a song by System of a Down. Revenge. I'm not going to call it that. No, don't. Look at the lyrics, guys. <laughs> Look up the lyrics. It's about a man who builds a clock tower and murders his wife and would be totally relevant to the title of the story. Ah, oh, gosh. Wow. Buck 35, eh? <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, back in my day, gas cost a buck thirty-five. Oh, back in my day, you could murder your wife for a buck thirty-five. <laughs> oh, I don't have a wife. Awful. God. Fuck. So, I think that's it. I'll come up with a title later. You guys will see it. It won't be a quandary for you. It's a quandary for me right now at this uh, exact time at 3.01 a.m. on a Thursday morning. Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's, the reality it's, of the situation is, is hitting me. I'm... There's... I'm exhausted. <laughs> Yeah.